What's up, guys? Uh, long time no see. Welcome here. Uh, this is episode 206, a sixth episode in the second season. And I'll keep this brief. I always say that. This was an awesome episode to put the work into and then to record. It's a collaboration episode with my friend Beth, aka Chaos Blue, from the Fanfic Maverick podcast. Um, we do a, basically a survey of fan fiction history from really the ancient Greeks, I guess, but pretty much from the 60s uh, up to the founding of AO3. This was a lot of work, just the research uh, that we put into this. And then we actually have a part two episode, which will be hosted on the Fanfic Maverick podcast. So if you could right now um, go to your podcast, search for the Fanfic Maverick podcast, go ahead and subscribe so that you'll be notified when that part two panel episode comes out. Otherwise, um, yeah, I'm still working on some episodes, but things have been a bit slower um, while I've been doing this. I did get to go on and I was kindly invited by Amato and Tori and crew from the Retro Fanfic Retrospective Podcast. So look those guys up, subscribe. They're like a really cool book club format podcast and they do mostly like pre-2007 even-ish fanfic they're like retro fanfic it's really cool so anyway without further ado here is part one of fan fiction history and again stay tuned for part two on the fanfic maverick podcast thanks guys Always do that microphone test. Oh yeah! I Every single time. Them? Oh man, and it's always the uh, it's always the McDonald's commercial. Da, 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 da. Um, uh, McDonald's attempt to appeal to the uh, the urban youth campaign. Oh yeah! Now it's doing it again. All right, fine, fine. You're gonna do that. You're gonna do me dirty like that, Skype. <laughs> that is totally fine. I obviously have no control over what's happening with my microphone right now. Fine. Sorry, Sarah. I know. We don't have time for this. We do, though. <laughs> I didn't go where it wants to go. It's totally fine. Whatever. Microphone. That's fine. Okay. I'm done. <laughs> yeah. Let's let's do this. Oh, you've already opened your beverage. Um, I'm just going to crack mine here. Here we go. That's as good a way as any to start uh, this episode of Talking Fanfic. And in fact, this is a very, very special episode. This is a collaboration episode with my good buddy from the Fanfic Maverick podcast, Beth. Welcome here. Hey, Sarah. I am so excited to be here and to be doing this collaboration project with you. It has been so much fun and we're going to have a great time. It's going to be pretty awesome. We've been working on this a little while. Oh, yeah. We started what? I think we started talking about this back in April, right? And yeah. then started like actually doing the project in May, <laughs> which is we did most of it. And then June, we've had all these meetings. It's been fantastic. I love working with you. I love working with you. And uh, I'm glad because I think I was reading and uh, this this is actually more relevant than I thought. So I was reading this, uh, this thing called the Fanfic Studies Reader, which turns out was a uh, it's, it's like an academic study on fan works and fan culture and fan fiction. 
Uh, and I had no idea it was actually published by the OTW, which we'll talk about so much in this episode, Organization for Transformative Works, um, and their partnership with the University of Iowa Press. And all the proceeds, if you buy one of these fanfic studies readers, uh, the proceeds go into the nonprofit Organization of Transformative Works, which I didn't know at all. I just thought I was buying a book, but it's appropriate because today I feel like the goal is to learn the history of this thing that we love so much. And I was as ignorant as anybody else starting out. So, uh, that, but that's what gave me the idea. And I texted Beth and I said, oh, dude, we should get together and talk about fanfic history because I don't know anything about it. And I think are you, you're at like a history. Did you go to college for history? Yeah, I did. I went to college and I got my degree in history. I studied um, like t 19th and 20th century American and European history. So not exactly like fandom history, but I love history. I love finding out facts. I love finding out events that lead to other events. And I've been interested in fandom history for a while. Um so when you propose this idea, I was so on board because it's right up my alley. I love history. I love finding stuff out. And uh, and I think that we both kind of felt, right, that it was important for people to understand the historical events and the historical context that led up to the creation of AO3. Because I think so many of us now just kind of AO3 feels like it's always been part of our fandom mm -hmm. experience. It's just kind of always been there. And a lot of us don't know the history of that or what it was like before AO3 existed. Yeah, I definitely took it for granted. And uh, the more I dug into, especially what was happening in the 90s and and up to the mid 2000s, well, up to when AO3 was founded, I was like, oh, so that's why we have AO3. <laughs> so, yeah. And also, actually, I just wanted to ask you, I've told my listeners before to listen to your podcast, but... Um, you are the host and creator of the Fanfic Maverick podcast. I feel like you're a creator after my own heart. So um, can you just do a quick plug for your podcast uh, and tell us what, uh, what you're up to and what you like about what you're doing? Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, when I first started this project, it was like... <laughs> I had two goals in mind, right? I really wanted a platform where we could talk to the actual creators of fan fiction because I think that what you guys do is one of the most amazing things in the entire world. I've had 24 years of joy and happiness reading all of the, the works that you guys create, and I just wanted to give some of that joy back and provide a platform where we could celebrate the work that you guys do because it's amazing. And before finding your show, Sarah, like I had never seen a, a podcast that did that. And so I thought, well, why not? Right. Um, and then of course I created it also for selfish reasons because like, I love meeting my favorite authors. It's like <laughs> the greatest thing in the entire world to me, like so many creative, beautiful, wonderful people. So I feel like the show has definitely given me way more, more that I give to, you know, my listeners and, uh, you know, the people at large. But it's just really this love fest because fan fiction is such a huge part of my life and other people's lives. And why not provide a platform where we can talk about it, discuss it, celebrate it? I think the world's ready for it. Oh, yeah. And I just I think your passion comes through and I love listening to the show. And uh, you've always got great questions and you have great authors on and um, I remember I just loved it right off the bat since it was multi-fandom. I got to hear about these uh, stories I hadn't read and these authors I wasn't familiar with. 
So you kind of inspired me in season two to branch out because, I mean, I will always love Cobra Kai, but it was fun. It has been fun for me to like branch out in some new fandom I'm into as well as some fandoms I've been in in a long time like Harry Potter. So anyway, kudos, buddy. I love your show. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. The show can be found, you know, primarily through my website. That's right. I try to direct people to go. It's uh, fanficmaverickpodcast.com. You can find the show on there for anybody who is unfamiliar with it and wants to listen to it. And of course, I've got your show plugged on there as well on the website. So <laughs> for my listeners who have never heard of you, you're up there linked and everything. So yeah, so this this is a fun collaboration for both of us. Um Let's uh, let's dig in. I think what we're going to do is just kind of go chronologically and just uh, go from the past into where we are now. Oh, and I should mention off the bat uh, before we dig in that we are going to be doing a part two episode that will be hosted on the Fanfic Maverick, and it'll be kind of a panel style and uh, fingers crossed we're going to have a couple guests on who were back there in the day, the OGs. Yeah. So that should be that should be really fun. Okay. Well, let's uh are you ready, Beth? Oh yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. So, um I'm going to talk about some parts and Beth will talk about some parts. Um I did some digging cuz kind of the question some people might ask is like when did fan fiction start? And it's kind of a depends on how you define fan fiction. I was coming across this term media fan fiction. And that's the fan fiction that kind of we know that's like books, TV show, movies, you know, established copyrighted canons. Um, that sort of started in the 60s with Star Trek. But before that, it started really as soon as we had stories to tell. And uh, it started really in, a, in an oral tradition. And then finally, when stuff started getting written down, which is really the Greeks and the Romans. And so the stuff that we know is like mythology and legend, um, that's what people had before... I guess things were commercialized. And a lot of that canon is lost. And I guess I'm talking mostly about like the Western canon. I don't really know much about the history of Eastern literature. But um, the, the Greeks, for instance, Homer's Odyssey and the Iliad is one that you'll, you'll hear about. Those characters became kind of common in the, uh, the Greek mythos, or I don't know what you would call that, but people used Homer's characters. He used actually real people as well. Um, you know, the Iliad is the story of the Trojan War, Agamemnon, uh, Aeneas, all those guys. Those were historical figures. So it was really almost sort of RPF. That's what I was thinking. It was a lot of RPF. And I think it's also <laughs> interesting to note here that Homer's works were heavily influenced by the first version of written literature that we have, which was the Epic of Gilgamesh. So the Ooh. Epic of Gilgamesh heavily influences Homer. Right. And then the Epic of Gilgamesh was uh, most likely just reiterations of established Mesopotamian mythology. Right. So we have this like long history of all these works being based off of other works. Right. Because then you have Homer and you have, um, you know, Virgil. Yes. Yeah. Virgil is definitely influenced by Homer. And actually, I'm glad you brought up Gilgamesh. I don't know as much about that, but I do remember in Western, my Western Civ class in college, um, doesn't that have kind of a creation story element to it that you kind of find in the Bible? Yeah. You know, the Epic of Gilgamesh covers the flood myth, which you find in the Bible. There are also um, stories about a like a paradise garden in the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is very similar to the Garden of Eden myth that you find in the Bible as well. Yeah. So it's like 
oh, you're articulating all this way better than I am. But you had like the Western tradition starting with the Greeks and then the Romans kind of riff off the Greeks and they kind of take a lot of that mythology and history and it goes into their art. Uh, and so, you know, that's why in elementary school you learn about like the god of war is both Mars and uh, Ares. So you have you always have your like Greek and Roman sort of equivalents. So that kind of meshes together. And then in the Middle Ages, the rise of like Judaism, Christianity, monotheism, they eventually kind of rediscover Greek and Roman philosophy and stories. And that kind of meshes in with European mythology. And so one of those examples I, I was just looking at, I was familiar with the story of Orpheus in the underworld bringing back his wife Eurydice. Uh, and then there's this there's this thing where he's kind of luring her out of the underworld, or not luring, guiding her out with <laughs> right. uh, his, his music. She wants to escape, uh, but he's not supposed to look back. But uh, but he does, and she she turns to stone, which is like very much like the the story of Lot's wife in the in the book of Genesis in the Bible, which is Lot and his wife are escaping from the fall of Sodom and Gomorrah. He looks back, and she turns to salt. So like you can yes. see like. These same stories repeating over and over again. Wait, Sarah, are you saying that these stories were crossovers? Oh, man. <laughs> remix? Maybe Lot, Lot, Lot and his wife is like the remix fic. Yeah. It sounds uh, like crossover fiction to me. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> oh, dude. Everything that we see now is like, it's so funny. We can like superimpose our words on it. Dante's, let's move on to Dante's Divine Comedy in 1320. Uh, so I, I put in parentheses author insert slash RPF. And for people who don't know, RPF is real person fiction. So you're, you're featuring like a real person. So, you know, Homer featuring Odysseus, you know, in the Odyssey, like it's RPF, but that's what they had. They didn't have these TV shows that we all have this common knowledge of. They had, you know, history and mythology. So those are the characters they use. So Dante in his divine comedy, he actually uses the character of himself. The The book is about Dante's journey through hell and purgatory and then heaven. And then he's guided by his hero, Virgil, who's just really liked this Roman poet, Virgil. And Virgil wrote the Aeneid, which was, as we said, influenced by Homer's Odyssey. And then he actually has a second guide as he's going through uh, that I think he meets in heaven or purgatory, Beatrice, which was this other like woman in his social group that he was just sort of infatuated with. So if you can imagine this like, you know, poet, author, and you like meet him at a party and he seems really nice. And then you realize that he's written you <laughs> into his epic, like, oof. Well, we hope it was a flattering portrayal. <laughs> Let's hope. It, I think it was flattering, but possibly um, a little bit creepy. Uh, I don't know. But Beatrice um, was a real woman that does appear in Dante's Divine Comedy. So you get Dante and this kind of mixing Greek and Roman mythology with sort of modern Christian philosophy and biblical stuff. And uh, so it's an author insert RPF remix, um, we can say now. <laughs> I love that. Uh, uh, you know, it, it, it pair it in with Bible fan fiction, right? Because you've got the heaven and the hell elements and stuff like that. So Bible fic. And what I'm getting at all this, and I won't go on too long, but it's fan fiction writers are part of an old established tradition of, um, you know, just taking a known story and asking, what if this happened? 
what if I was there? <laughs> what if these characters were there? So it's nothing new. Another Bible fic is Milton's Paradise Lost, which is about the fall of man. So he uses biblical characters, Adam and Eve. As you said, Beth, this is Bible fic. Yeah, Bible fan fiction, man. <laughs> well done, Milton. <laughs> Uh, you get who is probably the most popular English writer of all time, Shakespeare in the late 16th century. You know, Romeo and Juliet, those weren't his characters. Those characters were based on a poem written by author Brooke called The Tragical History of Romeus and Luliet. I don't know if that was a typo on the website, oh, <laughs> on the wiki. Um, yes. But those weren't his characters, uh, which is amazing because it's so iconically, it's just Shakespeare. It's his most popular play. You know, and then you have the history plays that Shakespeare did, Richard II, Richard III, which uh, back then also was pretty politically controversial at the time that he was writing Richard II. And Richard II is like this uh, story about kind of a weak king who is just not a good leader and his decisions are sort of ruining people's lives and the play goes along and there's like kind of a struggle for the crown and he actually ends up abdicating the throne which like did not happen. That was like not a common thing. Monarchs are ordained by God and then they stay there till they die. But at the time that it, this play was being written and performed, Queen Elizabeth I was in power and she, you know, she had her controversies in power. She wasn't, she was popular, but not with everybody. So I have a quote here from the wiki. Uh, and by the way, I do take a lot from Wikipedia as well as other sites. And then fan lore. I think Beth and I are both going to just be reading straight off of fan lore. <laughs> oh, yeah. That stuff's gold. And we'll talk about fan lore and what it is and uh, why it's important also. But anyway, it was just interesting to me when when he was writing Richard II, Queen Elizabeth heard about this. The Earl of Essex at the time was rebelling against her. And some of his supporters, let's see, paid Shakespeare's company to perform a play about Richard's reign. Uh, and then her response to that was, I am Richard II. Know ye not that. So <laughs> she was pretty pissed off that like, clearly this play is like, just stick her into that context. And it's this political play that's sort of the message is it's not flattering to Elizabeth, I guess. So basically, he wrote RPF, the yep. RPF got shown. Mm -hmm. And then she got pissed off. She got salty uh, about it, right? A A U, right? <laughs> That's what too if funny, Elizabeth though. lost the throne? <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. That's too funny. Shakespeare, you know, writing fan fiction, right? Uh, Falstaff is one of his most popular characters from the the Henry plays, Henry the Fourth and Fifth. My sister loves Falstaff. He's like this drunken, carousing knight that uh, is just really entertaining. Orson Welles ended up using him in a 1966 film called Chimes at Midnight. He loved Falstaff. And then Falstaff also appears in a couple of uh, some plays by Giuseppe Verdi, Ray Fawn Williams. Um, anyway, you can find all that on Wikipedia, but these are characters that even in the modern day are being used because they're no longer protected by copyright, which we'll talk about. That's the big thing about modern law and fan fiction. Um, and I'll kind of wrap this up just to keep going in the 18th, because this is funny, Beth, I think you like this. So in the 18th century, so the 1700s, Gulliver's Travels was one of the most popular novels that people were reading. Yeah. And uh, there was even like fan art being made. Um, we'll link this in the show notes. But uh, if you click that, let's see. Oh, I didn't link it for you. Um, but there's this like crazy uh, engraving of this guy named William Hogarth depicted Gulliver um, getting essentially a Lilliputian enema. 
Nice. Via a fire engine. Like it's just weird image of like a tiny, you know, Lilliputians are the tiny people that Gulliver encounters. <laughs> and they have a tiny fire engine going up into his ass. Uh, but but uh, I guess I should say uh, we'll be talking about adult themes in this <laughs> podcast. Now that's my kind of fan art, right? <laughs> right? I was like shocked. I was like, oh my God. So that was funny. And I'll link in the show notes. There was also this body kind of poetry that Alexander Pope wrote about Gulliver's wife, Mary Gulliver. She's actually barely mentioned in the novel. So this is like taking a, a minor character and then writing her whole perspective. And it's actually a pretty hilarious uh, bunch of poems. And she's basically like, it's from her perspective. So minor character POV. And Gulliver's come home and he's not sleeping with her. He's just like not interested. And the whole poem is about her like, what the fuck? You're my husband. Perform your husbandly duties. And it's this just sort of hilarious comedic thing about like her like pointing to her kids and she's like, I didn't stray. These are your kids. These are not the milkman's kids. Oh and how classically fan fiction is that, though, to take a minor character from a work and be like, we're just going to do, you know, something from this character's perspective and just kind of enhance her presence here. And it turns into these body poems about how she's not getting Dude. any. <laughs> Absolutely. That was my thought, too. I was like, That's this so is so great. fan fiction-y. <laughs> Um, in 1740, Samuel Richardson was a novelist at the time. He wrote this steamy, I don't think it was explicit, but it was like kind of a romance novel, but then not called Pamela. And it was about this lady's maid who is uh, in this, you know, Lord's house and he's trying to seduce her, but she manages to like get a hold of her virtue, you know, and her values and like hold him off. So it's like romantic, but it's sort of a moral tale, which you know, some people loved. Uh, and then some people were like, well, what the fuck? Like, where's the sex part? Um, so Henry Fielding, nine years later, he's another novelist. He's also a humorist. He wrote an alternate version of the novel called Shamala. Oh, right? So you, have, so you have Pamela and then Shamala. You can kind of see the sh sort of shame or shameful, shameless. I don't know. But it's, just, it's like an epistolary. So a novel in the style of letters, which is popular at the time. These scheming letters between Pamela and her mother showing that Pamela was faking the whole blushing virgin thing and her plans to actually entrap the master. Oh. And uh, so it's like, it's like, ah, she's not so innocent. So funny. And then the same author, Henry Fielding, in uh, just uh, a few years later wrote uh, Joseph Andrews, which was a gender swap. It was like Grease 2. It was like Pamela's brother has to resist the seduction of an older, of the original squire, or the original master's sister, like noble sister. Like, how funny is that? Oh, that's awesome. Because, you know, gender swap, that's a, that's a huge trope, right? It's one that we're very familiar with in our community. So that's so interesting. Yeah, it was, you know, so it's cool. It's like not gender swap in the sense that the same character is like, you know, swapping gender, but it's like basically the same role, uh, but just in the man. So I thought that was fun. He's yeah. like still riffing off of it. Yeah, it's a total riff. So the Industrial Revolution kind of comes along and then we eventually get copyright law. And I think at some point we'll circle back to that or 
talk more about it, but it's really important to understand in the context of the situation that fanfic authors found themselves in in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and today, which is that there didn't used to be copyright law. And then the British passed something called the Statute of Anne in 1710. Before that, the printer's guilds basically kind of had ownership rights or control over what was printed, I think. There's there's some copyright experts out there that are going to be like, you're fucking this up, Sarah. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, the the first uh, U.S. Copyright Act was passed in 1790. So there's nothing in the Constitution that guarantees creators, you know, rights to their intellectual property. Uh, but since the Constitution authorizes Congress to pass laws, Congress passes the Copyright Act of 1790. And really, it's just like been sort of revised since then. So the most modern revision uh, was in 1976. Uh, which I didn't write down, but I believe that establishes the fair use clause. And if you're going to know anything about copyright law and fan fiction, you need to know about fair use because that's what allows you to do what you do. And that's the legal basis that the archive of our own nonprofit organization of transformal works, that's how they're going to keep you protected and how they do keep you protected. So basically, as long as we're not making money, the work is non-commercial That's really the number one thing. There's also a provision about it being transformational. So, you know, that you're not just taking J.K. Rowling's book, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, and then changing it to Barry Blotter and the Prisoner of Krazkaban, you know, and... And like copy and pasting the whole novel, right? Exactly. That's yeah. plagiarism. They probably still wouldn't care as long as you're not making money. But that's but uh, so the non-commercial thing is the most important part. But also, you know, you need to be able to argue that your work is transformational, and all fan fiction is transformational, as well as you can make an argument for fan vids. You know, all fan art. Fan vids are a little trickier because the the footage and the music is coming from you know someone's intellectual property, but the way that you mash them together to sort of tell a narrative of your own and the fact that you're not making money again non-commercial is the most important part but youtube uses the um the dmca which is a law called the digital millennium copyright act you will see stuff like your video has been taken off youtube due to copyright so yep. fan vitters i think have to deal with more than fan fiction writers have to um, but anyway that's that's fair use so Anyway, that's my brief history pre the 1960s. And just know that you're joining a great tradition of people using existing works and using them to tell new stories or or stories in between stories or intertextuality, I guess, is that's called. Yeah. And just showing that it's a long history of what humans have always done. Right. We've always taken stories that other people have created and used them to tell new stories and change it up. And, you know, like storytelling is something human beings have been doing since the dawn of time. So, you know, the introduction of ownership and copyright law is really such a modern concept to me. You know, like, it's just funny to me that when you um, consider how long human beings have been around and how long we've been telling stories, you know, copyright has <laughs> been around that long when you compare it like that. So it's just an interesting turn of events, I think. Yeah, if you think about the timeline, yeah, the Greeks and the Romans were BC, you know, I can't remember how BC, but that was a long time ago. And then just the modern copyright law, like I said, 1790 in the United yeah. States, you know. Yeah. And it's there's reasons for it. In the economy that we live in, if people want to make a living out of telling stories, you do need to make money off of that. And copyright, the point of it is to protect intellectual property. But like you said, telling stories is such a, it's it's a human impulse. It's like 
one of those things that makes us human. It separates us from animals. That's how we, we've always built culture. That's how we know who we are and how we build a, a human understanding of ourselves and the world is like looking at things, observing the world, and then telling stories. Uh, there's a cool Joan Didion quote I wrote down, which is, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. And it's just like everything. It's like making order out of chaos. Yeah. So it's, it's such a, like, it's so, so it's weird. Like you said, it's like we've never regulated it or monetized it really until copyright. And there's reasons for that. Like I said, JK Rowling puts all this effort into building this world of Harry Potter. And then if someone goes along and like, oh, I'm going to write uh, Hermione's perspective of Hogwarts, you know. She's taken the characters in the world that J.K. Rowling has created and then is now making money. So, I, you know, I understand that copyright has its place and it does, but it's important to have this fair use clause so that we can pursue our human impulses to create. Yeah, exactly. That impulse to create art. Because like you said, we're not trying to make money off of it, right? We're not trying to compete, you know, financially or, or you know, entrepreneurially with any of these people and these creators we just want the right to be able to create art off of yeah. the cultural icons that happen to be part of our cultural fabric which are all of these original canon scenarios and characters that we see in modern culture and that's like pretty well understood now between like you don't have a lot of creators trying to sue fan fiction writers um, but that wasn't always the case it was not <laughs> let's talk about the early 60s and star trek beth yeah yeah so in the 60s is when we generally understand modern fandom to have kind of been born in that era. We had something called fanzines. Um, and fanzines actually started, I didn't realize this, but they started like in the early 1930s with um, science fiction fans who really enjoyed that whole science fiction scene, I guess. So they would get together and they would have discussions about sci-fi and they would come up with these fanzines. And it's actually interesting because a lot of the most famous sci-fi writers got their start by publishing original short stories in these fan fiction fanzines. Uh, so they would submit it, and if they got really lucky, they'd get chosen, and then people would start, like, recognizing their name as a writer, and it was this really cool thing. Um, so when Star Trek came around, and, uh, you know, forgive me, Star Trek fans, because my brain sometimes doesn't remember dates correctly, <laughs> I am pretty sure that Star Trek debuted in 1967, and ran until 1969. It had uh, two seasons on the original, uh, you know, Star Trek, the original. Three, and, I think. Um, three? Oh, Jesus. Just, I only know that because I have the DVDs. <laughs> All right. A thousand lashings for me. I'm the worst Star Trek fan in the world. Yeah. But I think you're yeah, about, so. about right on those years, though. <laughs> yeah. Oh, good. Okay. 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 So we'll cut it down to 500 lashings then. Um, so, so yeah, in 1967 is when, you know, the Star Trek thing kind of blew up because it was kind of the first of its kind, honestly, right? On TV. Oh, yeah. You had all these amazing characters and all these amazing scenarios. And for the time, the special effects on the show were kind of like, you know, interesting and awesome. And, oh, yeah. You know, people were just going crazy over the show. And so it sparked all of this fandom and it sparked the creation of fandom communities. So one of the things that they these fandom communities wanted to do is borrow off of the fanzine tradition that started with uh, science fiction communities back in the 1930s. So uh, Star Trek fans started putting together their own fanzines in the 60s and 70s, which was really cool. I found out that the 
the very first Star Trek fanzine was published in 1967, the year that the show came out. And it was called, um, I think it was pronounced Spockanalia. That's how I read it. Yeah. yeah, Spockanalia. And it was like 45 pages long, you know. Uh, you know, back then, I didn't know this either, but back then, they had to use these machines called mimeograph machines to actually produce and reproduce these fanzines. And then once they're like sitting there by hand using this mimeograph machine to crank out these pages, Ugh. then they have to sit there and bind that shit by hand, you know? Damn, dude. So like you're sitting there like making, hand making like hundreds of these fanzines for people. Like just the work and the time that went into it <laughs> boggles my mind, right? You must really have to love something. Right. Oh man. To produce something like that. And the zines was it um it was kind of a mix, wasn't it? There was some fan fiction being published, but also it was just like fandom discussion or other Yeah, it was a really neat mix. Like I actually went on to Fanlore to take a look at some pages that came from the original Spockanalia, mm. uh, you know, nineteen sixty seven publication. And there was all kinds of cool shit in there. Like uh you did have fan fiction stories that were published in there, and then you also just had like really random stuff. Like there was this one person that published a short article about what they thought Spock's heart might look like because you know vulcan hearts are Amazing. different than human hearts and they're actually located different in the body um they're more down you know and to the side on a vulcan whereas human hearts are like more up in the chest area anyway so they had like this little article about vulcan hearts and they had this hand-drawn diagram of what they thought the heart might look like it was just really cool stuff and so there were all kinds of discussions happening they printed letters from um gene roddenberry in there and they printed letters from some of the cast and crew in there Aww. they had um i don't know just all kinds of really cool stuff i mean the first publication was like 45 pages you know so it was like all kinds of cool stuff it was really just a lot of fun you know and then uh from what i understand they just took all of these copies of spock and alia and they went to a sci-fi uh star trek convention and just sold them at the convention for like 50 cents a dollar a piece something like that you oh, know yeah. probably just trying to cover their what it costs to like ink and paper and yeah. i mean maybe somebody some people were trying to make some money but you know that's uh yeah because i did hear like you would go to like a dealer's room or like an area with probably people just had tables and just buy your zines man yeah yeah you would take all your stuff there and people loved it because like honestly you know what am i i don't know about anyone else but one of my favorite parts of fandom is when you love something so much you can't wait to see something new from that yes. universe right because if you've like binge watched the whole show a thousand times you know every episode by heart you cannot wait right for that new content and that's what these fan scenes were providing for people was new content and also kind of a way for um i think it was also a way for fans to communicate with each oh, other yeah. because in these fanzines you actually had people publishing works that were responding to previously published works in other fanzines so in a way there was this dialogue happening it's like a proto message board kind of yes so it was just a really cool way for fans to be able to communicate with each other on you know things that they loved 
they would get new content that they would get really excited about. So it was all good. I mean, can you imagine being like a Star Trek fan in like 1967, 68? You're like a salesman. You got to go to work every day. Like the best part of your day is coming home watching Star Trek. But there's no internet. You can't stream episodes. You can't rewatch them. There's no VCR yet so you can't record anything so you're just like you have to get home at a certain time you have to be paying attention you have to watch the episode i i'm sure there's people taking notes you know as they watch it if they're really interested in like you know go to the library and research right you know and it's also like now we have this cliche of um fans being these like mouth breathing dorks but like (laughs) i think both of us have done some research and like you know just discovering like that Fans come in all shapes and sizes, as well as professionals. So whoever, guy or lady, that probably wrote that article about Spock's heart, they very well could have been like an MD or, you know, somebody who is like a professional that would get maybe laughed out of the room. But this is like their passion. And so, yeah, going to a convention is probably like the most amazing thing because you finally get to talk to people who love something as much as you do. And we can do that every day on the Internet. But in the 60s, once a year, maybe. Right. Exactly. That's why the cons were such a huge deal back then. And I think that that's how it actually was able to grow so big into this mega fandom. You know, Star Trek is the first modern mega fandom that we know about because, you know, that's exactly what happened. People got so into it. So they did have to organize things like conventions and fanzines and stuff just to have somewhere to go to be passionate about the things that they love. I think it's amazing. And then I don't know if you were just going to go right into this, but um, these fanzines were probably men and women, but like a, a lot of Star Trek fans at conventions were probably men. But then the fan fiction became this like mostly women thing. And then they started to get their own specifically fan fiction fans scenes and that's really where you get the ks and that's where the term slash comes from which is they would designate a story k slash s i don't know if that happened later or or when exactly that term originated but it came out of the star trek fan fiction and the relationship between kirk and spock it did it did i love that you brought that up too because you're right like i feel like a lot of these fandom spaces starting out probably were a little male dominated right But then you had women, too, that loved these things and they wanted to interact with it, but they wanted to interact with it in their own way. Right. And so they really got into the whole fan fiction writing thing. And you're right. Like that was super female dominated. A lot of these uh, fanzines, especially the ones that um, focused more on the fan fiction, they were run by women. They were made by women. Like super amazing when you think about all of these ladies, you know, like organizing themselves and just getting shit done, man. There's something to be said for that. Yeah. Especially at a time, like now we have men and women in fan fiction. We have trans people in fan fiction. But back then it was like, it really was a female space because, and this is generalization as anything, but men tend to be interested in stuff like, uh, you know, drawing a, a scale accuracy map of the Enterprise or going out in your yard and filming a video with your friends with lightsabers in your Star Wars. Like, it's cliche kind of fanboy things. But like, women tend to be interested in like, the emotional aspect of things. What do Spock and Kirk really talk about in the ready room? What are the emotional pressures about being a captain on a starship for five years? And like, women didn't have a space for that. Women were like, in the kitchen, you know, women were like, not taking taken as seriously professionally back then. And so it's a pretty amazing thing, like you said, that women created these spaces for themselves. And uh, so it was really early fan fiction, I feel like is really 
the story of feminism too. I think some of those women ended up it kind of complicates the fan fiction thing, but they ended up going on to write a, like companion novels. I know Rivka T in my interview mentioned that some of the early fanzine writers you saw their names then published on like licensed companion novels for Star Trek, which of course were like desanitized down. Like you right. probably had a Kirk Spock tension, but like, <laughs> you know, you can't you can't go too far. Well, some of them did. I was reading one on Tumblr the other day and I was like, this is spicy for <laughs> like, you know <laughs> for professionally published like fan fiction novel. Oh my goodness. <laughs> oh my God. This is so funny. It is funny, but you're right. Like for a lot of these women who probably back then didn't have a lot of opportunity like we do now to do whatever we want to do, you know, for a lot of them back then, that fan fiction really was that springboard, right? And their introduction into writing things, which a lot of them got their professional start that way, and then went on to publish other things. It's freaking awesome. Absolutely. And of course, after the Star Wars craze, no, Star Wars. I'm sorry. After the Star Trek craze, you know, you had the fanzines bleed out into all other kinds of fandoms, too. Star Wars came out in the 70s, and you had a ton of, like, Star Wars fanzines that followed the same tradition as the Star Trek ones. And and then after that, you had, like, just explosions of fanzines all over the place with lots of different, um, you know, genres and shows. So not just science fiction related shows, but you had fanzines for just about everything back in the 80s, I think. So yeah, it was definitely something that kind of bled through everywhere at some point. Yeah, and it's amazing. And next, we're going to talk about like, kind of the proto internet and the start of how internet changed things. But it's funny that zines as popular as they were in the 60s and 70s and 80s kind of died out. Uh, but there, you can still actually find some of them. And funny enough, um, in the t- really the only two fandoms I'm following closely right now, if you watch the show or you listen to the show, you'll know, um, Smallville and then Cobra Kai. Oddly, both of them right now are putting together zines. Uh, and you can find well, – we'll put links in the show notes, but you can find the information on Tumblr. But both of these guys are doing digital copies as well as they will be printing paper copies. And this might be happening in your fandom too if you're in other fandoms. Or you can start a zine and check out what these guys are doing and see how they're doing it. Uh, but it's amazing that I, I just thought that was so cool that as I'm digging into this history right now that sort of the tradition is being honored with the uh, – Clark Lex zine, the Clex zine of 2021, which is the Smallville fans are doing for the 20th anniversary of the Smallville pilot is happening in October, the 20 years since the show started. And then right now in 2021, uh, the Karate Kid and Cobra Kai fans are putting together a zine and those proceeds will go to charity. But anyway, I just wanted to plug this real fast because it's so cool, you know, keeping the tradition alive. Yeah, that resurgence of that tradition is so cool. It's awesome. Who wants to talk about this? So something called the internet, or even before the internet starts to change the way the things go. Um, did you want to talk about this? Do you want me to talk about this? <laughs> no, I, go we didn't for really it. plan on it. I know, I know, I know. Okay, I'll talk about this one. So after... We get this zine and convention culture, which is which is really facilitating. That's how fan fiction is distributed in the 60s and 70s, is really conventions and zines. Um, and then in the 80s and 90s, that's when really the digital age is starting. So actually, the funny part is that um, we now think of the internet as synonymous with the World Wide Web, WWW. But actually... That wasn't the first type of network. There were sort of the proto-internet. 
I don't even know exactly how they work, but there was these, there was this company or platform called Usenet, U-S-E-N-E-T, and also one called Prodigy. Beth, correct me if I'm wrong on any of this stuff, but it's basically, I think, a network, and you would use some sort of disk to enable your computer to reach this network. Yeah, you had to have access to like the network. And from what I understand, very few people had private access. Most people were accessing these platforms through university computers because the university oh. computers had access to these early pre-World Wide Web internet prototypes. So, you know, it was mostly like, uh, you know, college people, professors and students <laughs> who were participating in this because they had access. Because most people didn't have a home computer at that time, um, unless you were like a real like technology geek or something. Yeah. Um, that, that makes sense though about the university thing. So the people that did have access would, they could get on something called a Usenet. And it's basically a type of network in which you could interact with fans and it was organized in a way that is described as like a billboard system, a BBS. And it's it's a lot like Yahoo groups or when you get AOL, you know, once the, the World Wide Web is established, um, it's kind of like early internet, basically, which is where you could find specific groups – you know, specific people were interested in. So if you were like a gearhead and you liked cars, you could find a car group and they didn't have instant message yet, but there was like kind of a message board system. And so of course, sci-fi fans, Star Trek fans, all that stuff formed their own groups as well as in the early nineties, uh, a popular example would have been alt Star Trek creative or ASC. And a lot of these Usenet groups, the way that the group address, it's ALT dot something. The Star Trek one was alt.startrek.creative is ASC. The X-Files one was alt.tv.xfiles.creative or ATXC. So some of these were just like really popular um, and people would go on and discuss the show. And of course, fanfic authors and fans, they would post here and then well, especially mailing lists really enabled um, fanfic writers to distribute fan fiction. So you have your groups. So you have alt.tv.xfiles.creative. And then eventually you got a mailing list, um, which enables people to sign up to a list. And whenever someone writes a story and posts it, you c everyone on that list can get access to it. And that would be like ATXC, and there'd be an L on the end for list. But so X-Files was, was a huge part of that. Yeah, Beth, anything you can kind of add there or... Yeah, no, that was great. That was great. That's exactly what happened. It was still kind of like, like you pointed out, most people didn't have personal computers back in the 80s. They were way too expensive. And the people that did have those personal computers mm -hmm. probably were not connected to these networks, right? And so like, it, it was still a really limited fandom experience that only some people could have, because not everybody had access to this like grand network, you know, connecting all of these university computers together. So it was really cool, though, for people to be able to have communications, because for the first time, you know, people are communicating about these shows that they love with people all over the world. Yeah. And, you know, so at the time, like Star Trek was still extremely popular. You had the uh, original series was over by that time, but it was in syndication. So people were still watching episodes, you know, repeating on CBS or whatever. Um, but the next generation was a show that was starting the X-Files. I mentioned that that was huge as far as fandom and meta, 
you know, people would write essays on the psychology of the relationship between Mulder and Scully. And that there's another phantom term, shipping, that comes from the X-Files. Um, I think I'd read this somewhere, but then, um, oh, X-Parrot, who I interviewed, she used to write X-Files fan fiction. And uh, she had mentioned this, too, that there were kind of this, like, fandom camps that would uh, would form around discussion of the show, especially an intense show like The X Files, when you have really two characters, two main characters. Yeah. So there were there were people that loved the professional and sort of trusting relationship between Mulder and Scully, but did not want it to be romantic. And they were called No Romos, like that was their <laughs> camp was No Romo, No Romance. And then there were MSR people who's Mulder Scully Romance. They yeah. they want the romantic relationship. And then there were these other people called Intellishippers, which. Uh, I can't remember exactly, but it's just they loved sort of the intellectual um, sort of compatibility there. And yeah. I don't – I think wanted to like I, – I think they thought maybe they were writing fic that was better than just like trashy porn. I'm not sure. <laughs> Apologies to the intellectuals. intellectual. <laughs> intellectual fiction. But it's interesting in these early groups – like now we have a lot of people kind of looking fondly back. And I started to get nostalgic for 90s fandom too, just reading about it. But you really did have a lot of like kind of fracturing. Oh, I think you mentioned this later. We'll talk about it, like this balkanization thing. But you you had these groups and then you'd maybe get a group of people that found that they didn't want to be with this other, you know, half of the group and they would split off. So like in Star Trek, you had alt Star Trek creative ASC. And that was a very like kind of clean, wholesome place you had the people who were interested in erotica and chaos shipping. So they created alt Star Trek creative erotica. And then that had its own conflicts. And then you had ASCEM, alt Star Trek creative erotica moderated. <laughs> so it's like all these different groups kind of breaking off. So, and there's draw, there's fandom drama. There's still fandom drama today, but it was still going on back then. Oh Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And I, you know, that's the interesting thing that happened, I think, with the rise of the internet in the mid 90s, I think is when the internet kind of became more accessible to everyday people. Um, yep. And then you had the the news groups that kind of grew out of the Usenet tradition. And those news groups were awesome, because anybody with an internet connection could participate in those. And it also meant that just about anybody could create their own news group. So yes, you started seeing like, a huge splintering of fandom based on interest, you know, and the types of things that people were interested in with all of these little niche, you know, mailing list type fandom communities and things um, where people could kind of maybe curate their experience a little bit better. <laughs> yeah. And like today, you know, like Tumblr isn't like that. Social media is, is very like these like scrolling um, dashboard type things, which is very different from what this was, which is where you really go to find your people. And then it's like intense discussion of the fandom characters. And I, I think Discord kind of like chat rooms provide that same experience sort of. Um, but it's very different really from like social media that we have today. Yes. I'm so glad you pointed that out because doesn't it seem like a more intimate experience yes. being in these news groups and things like that? And you really get to know people on like a pretty deep level. Yeah. That's one thing that me getting into the Smallville fandom and I, I'm finding that my favorite works are often ones that were written when the show started in the early 2000s. And it's so cool because um, so Smallville was one of those fandoms. We'll talk about this in a second. That a lot of that fic was hosted on a fandom specific site. So the Smallville slash archive, for instance. 
So a lot of this fix were there before, and then they were imported to AO3, or, or people had them on their live journals, and then and we'll talk about that. But anyway, just by reading the author's notes, you can get a sense of the community that was there. So like a lot of my favorite authors, Rivka T, Astolat, Speranza, a lot of those guys were all talking, Separus, they were all talking, they were collaborating, they were remixing each other's stuff. So I don't know, it, it does really give me this like nostalgia for a time I was not around for. And But we do have that. And I will say it, it does still exist. And especially like in Cobra Kai, the Discord helped me connect with other authors in my fandom. But yeah, I don't know, there's something different that those news groups, I think, provided, which is this like intense fan discussion and really getting serious and intellectual about it, that something like Tumblr, in my opinion, doesn't really facilitate very well. Yeah, I think a lot of people have been saying that about Tumblr. That's one of, I think, the most, um, I think that's the most common uh, complaint that I see about Tumblr and about other social media, too, whereas, you know, these social media platforms just kind of let you s- scream into the void, whatever you want to say, right? Yes. <laughs> but it's not necessarily one of those things where you get a lot of interaction and back and forth communication. I know that there are features like that on Tumblr, but it's not the same thing as some of these other platforms that, you know, fandom communities used prior to that, where you really could facilitate a good discussion, good intimate relationships, I keep using that word. I shouldn't edit that out. Edit that out, Sarah. I don't mean to say that. (laughs) Send the anger fan mail to Fanfic Maverick and not to Sarah. Um, But I just mean like, um, it seems like the authors really got to know each other really well. And it was just more of a tight knit experience, you know, having those discussions and everything. Whereas you're right with modern uh, social media, it doesn't feel like that at all. (laughs) Which is a shame. It is a shame. And it's designed to monetize your attention. And it becomes this very, I don't know if schizophrenic is the right word. It's designed to grab your attention and just keep you scrolling down this endless, just like, look at this, look at this, look at this. Oh, look at this, look at this. Do you want to like that? Like that? Reblog that? Blah, blah, blah. There's all this algorithm stuff happening in the background. and And yeah, you're kind of curating your own timeline, but it's... I don't know. It's so fractured and strange and I don't know. It's not it's not facilitating the types of conversations that I think fans of a show really want to have. It's just kind of like you said shouting into the void and ugh, I don't like it. <laughs> I know. I know. Well, and we'll get to there. We'll we'll get there because I know that that's kind of part of uh, you know, the discussion that we have planned here as we go through our our fandom history timeline, because that definitely, I think, pulls into some of the other stuff that we'll be talking about. The next step then, in the mid-90s to 2000s, the fan websites and the fandom-specific archives. And the fan websites, you know a little bit more about. um, Maybe talk about a little bit about GeoCities, Angel, you know, all that stuff. Oh, yeah. So I think I'll talk about this from personal perspective Mm. here, because I was 14 years old in 1997, And that's when my family got the internet for the very first time. And that was my first ever online internet experience with online fandom community. I was really into this um, sci-fi show on Nickelodeon called Space Cases. I don't think anybody remembers that (laughs) show but me. (laughs) But like, I remember logging into AOL at 14 years old and finding these really cool online message boards just for Space Cases. 
And it was like the coolest thing in the whole entire world. And I made a lot of friends there. And, you know, back then, when you were part of a fandom community, it was very common for you to want to create your very own personal fan site for whatever fandom you happen to be a part of. Um, companies like Geocities and Angel Fire made this possible. So you could sign up with either of those two platforms and you could essentially like make your own website right yep. and it was kind of like silly because like the um you would sign up and the url that they would give you was like 50,000 miles long you know <laughs> and it had all these crazy like numbers and letters in it and you couldn't make heads or tails of it so when you're like you know sharing your url with your friends you know you would have to copy and paste it in cuz <laughs> you would be there a thousand years trying to like say it to them verbally it was like terrible <laughs> But that's what we did. Like back then, there were not a lot of coding languages. So everybody was coding using HTML. And you just kind of taught yourself how to code with HTML so that you could make your own fan site. So I for sure had my own Space Cases fan uh, site. I didn't actually, you didn't tell me that? Uh... Yeah, I did. <laughs> I totally did. Amazing. It was so great. I had multiple pages on it. I had like back then, uh, you know, a lot of these really cool coding languages didn't exist, but you did have moving GIFs. So I had like this moving GIF on my website and all these crazy colors and stuff. It was a blast. And then what you would do is you would sign your personal website up with something called a web ring. Web rings. A web ring, which was like this little piece of code that you would put onto your site and it would show up at the bottom of your website and it would say, this website is part of, you know, the space cases web ring. And the web ring basically had a back arrow and a forward arrow. And so what you would do is, you know, you would visit somebody's space cases site. Uh, and then when you were ready to go to the next fan site in the ring, you would just hit that forward arrow and it would just take you randomly Dude. to the next, you know, website in the list. And so you could easily spend like all freaking afternoon, right? Every day, just exploring people's fan sites and being like, oh my gosh, look at this cool content. And I used to make jokes, like space cases jokes on my page. So people came to my page for jokes. <laughs> I like made up like alien languages on my website. So people used to drop in for alien language lessons. Oh my God. And all this crazy shit, you know, but I remember one afternoon I was clicking through this web ring and that's when I found my first piece of fan fiction it was on a Space Cases fan site and someone had posted a Space Cases fan fiction, my very first fanfic ever. It was like the most magical experience, but that's what people were doing back then is making their own fan sites thanks to Geocities and Angel Fire and it, they were putting up all kinds of weird trash like I was. <laughs> But a lot of people were putting up fan fiction at that time on their own personal websites. It was really cool. Did the back of your head just blow off? You're like, what is this? It did, though, because, like, you have to understand that Space Cases got canceled after, like, one or two seasons. So, you know, 14-year-old me is devastated at this point because my favorite show got canceled. And so, you know... Here I am being presented with this piece of like, like, you know, literature, right? And I love to read. That's like my thing. 
And so all of a sudden I'm presented with these new scenarios and more time with the characters that I love. And it was just amazing. Like, yes, my head blew off and it was like, I have to find more of this. Like, what the fuck is this? And yeah, I was lost after that. Fan fiction got me and never gave me back. So (laughs) that's amazing. And also just, again, talking about, you know, not just women, that was a big part of it, but just fan ingenuity, like these people teaching themselves HTML and putting their own sites together and, and, you know, putting all their own works up in an archive, you know, for a lot of people, maybe they'd only just had a computer, you know, a couple of months or something, and they're already trying to learn HTML and just, you know, build the internet kind of. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing to me what people will do out of love, right? And so people, because they love something so much, they're willing to do all this crazy stuff and put all this crazy work into it. Because you're right. Like, I know I spent hours teaching myself how to code in HTML <laughs> just so I could make my website. And everybody was doing that. Um, it's interesting to me, though, to note that as fandom started moving onto the Internet, there was a lot of discourse happening, I think, in fandom. When that happened, right? Because you had like the old school people who were used to fandom being like at conventions and in fanzines and stuff. And when they start saying fandom jump onto the internet, it made a lot of people upset, right? Because you have to have a computer, you have to know how to use the computer. And there are instances in fan history where these women were giving older computers to other women fans so that they wouldn't miss out. on the fandom community happenings as the internet came up, you know, like they didn't want them to be left behind. So they would send them these computers and they would teach them how to use them. And if that's not like so freaking beautiful, like I don't know what I'm just like, I'm holding my hand over my heart right now. That's amazing. That's so cool. Like, you know, not only are we awesome as like a fandom community, but we do that for each other, you know? We'll reach out. We'll help each other. We'll make sure that nobody gets left behind. We teach each other skills, right? It's just so freaking amazing. I I get so excited talking about it because it's just so beautiful. It is beautiful. And um, we'll get into more of this later, but I, I see you have a note here that, you know, as you know, like if you click a link now with GeoCities or Angel Fire in the address, it's probably a dead link. And uh, we'll specifically get into purges, I think, later, but... That was one thing I would say that sort of starts here is that since people had control of their own websites, they could produce their own slash, explicit content, pornography, which freaked some people out and is is kind of in this new wild, wild west of the internet. There's not established, really, people don't know what to do with this fan fiction. They don't know if it violates copyright or not. So GeoCity shuts down, it says in 2009. Sorry, you might have to correct me. I know that they shut down some sites for profane content. And I guess maybe all of GeoCity shut down later, but people lost their work um, maybe for the first time in internet history. Yeah, I know that the um, the very first instance that I found was Tripod. Tripod was a service that was like GeoCities and Angel Fire, not as popular, I think, as GeoCities mm. and Angel Fire. I didn't personally know anybody that used Tripod, but it was out there. And the first Tripod instance of purging happened in 2001. Okay. Um, So, but yeah, you see a lot of instances like that with these companies, because while it is your own personal website, it's still being hosted with a company, a corporation, GeoCities, AngelFire, Tripod. They still technically own the servers, 
They own the hosting. So if they want to shut you down for any reason, they can. Yeah, these are for-profit institutions. They are subject to probably like a board of directors, public opinion, that type of stuff. So when you're GeoCities and all of a sudden you get these like letters from these like people who don't understand explicit fiction, don't like it, and they say, what are you guys doing hosting this filthy, filthy stuff? Well, GeoCities is like, well, we don't want to, you know, we don't want any bad press. They're not going to bother to email you and say, hey, you might want to take your stuff down. They're just going to shut you down. And so, again, if you're not catching the thread of this, all this history is going to lead up to the reasons why AO3 was established. But that's one of the first times that it starts to happen. Besides the personal websites, after that, in the, maybe the mid-90s and on, you start to get these collective archives, the first really fandom as a whole archives that fans put together and work together to put everybody's fan fiction on maybe like one site. For instance, the Gossamer Archive for the X-Files. Um, yeah. Did you want to talk about a little bit about this too? I feel like you've got a good handle or I could talk too. No, no. You probably, I think both of us probably know about these uh, equally because we were both, you know, on all of these different archives and stuff. I remember being on the Gossamer Archive. I totally read X-Files fan fiction back in the 90s. I will cop to that. I loved that show. It was so great. Although I wasn't really so much into the Mulder Scully ship. So you were a no Romo. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I preferred, I think, um, to see Crycheck and Mulder together. That's just my personal preference. Dude, I was yeah. going to say Crycheck. I saw some fandom term about him, like one of the first like fandom bicycles. Like he's just like an attractive <laughs> dude. That's kind of intriguing. And then he, like everyone ships him with like everyone. <laughs> yeah, he was totally used that way. Absolutely. You know, so it made for some really interesting storytelling there. But but yeah, there was Gossamer. Um, there was a ton of like Star Trek ones. Um, what was the the one that you remember? The, the one that uh, it just makes me laugh only because I remember what the page looked like. And I can just remember like nine, 10 year old Sarah, which was the first time I really uh, got into this stuff because I was obsessed in 1999 when Star Wars, the first prequel came out, The Phantom Menace. I was like in love with Obi-Wan Kenobi, Ewan McGregor. He was like, Ugh, my first like sort of fandom love and I just wanted more and we had just gotten a family computer probably in 98-ish maybe 99 somewhere in there and uh and then we had dial-up internet you know you got the AOL CD you put in and um you got the submarine, <laughs> submarine sound. sound oh I love it <laughs> dude uh, and uh, getting on somehow, I think I found maybe the force.net message boards first. And I think that's how somehow I came across the word fan fiction. Someone probably had a link to the Jedi Apprentice fan dimension, which was a Jedi Apprentice was like basically a young adult tie in novel series for the adventures of Qui Gon and Obi Wan, essentially. Um, and that was my first encounter with fan fiction that, that I can remember. Um, so that was a big one for me. Um, I don't think I really discovered too much other fan fiction until – because I think I kind of fell out and then got back in in like, I don't know, the 2000s sometime. But at some point I discovered Kirk Spock slash um, – Yeah. So there was like the KSA archive yep. was on for the Kirk Spock slash and – 
you had, I think you had like Do South Archives. Yeah, Hexwood I have written down. I think that was just a, a fan of specific archive. All these fans had multiple archives. So a fan who had some technical experience, you know, they would usually pay these. There's always fees to like host stuff or host a website and, and get a sort of a server service. But um, these fans would, would put their own sort of time, money, and love into making these fandom archives. And I don't know if other fans maybe donated money to help them out or not, but there were a lot of fans that used their time, treasure, and talent to put these archive sites together. Smallville Slash Archive, West Wing Fan Fiction Central, uh, like I said, the force.net. Oh, one thing I was amused to see is that there's a site called lcfanfic.com, which is a Lois and Clark, which was the 90s Superman show, is still going, I guess. Or Is it really? At least it's not dead. On FanLore, if you look it up, it says 1996 to present, which most of those fandom sites have a terminus date where they stopped being hosted or were archived somewhere. So I thought oh, that was nice. so funny that like maybe there's a Lois and Clark fan out there that's like... Forever. Still going strong. <laughs> yes. Oh, Fiction Alley. I think I remember that one. You were probably more familiar with that one. Yeah. Fiction Alley was one of the many Harry Potter fan run archives that hosted Harry Potter fan fiction. There were so many, though. I I feel like I can't even count them all on one hand because there were just so many. And I frequented them all, like, believe me. you know. <laughs> so, What was your ship, your Harry Potter ship? What did you read? Oh my God. Okay. I'm about to out myself here. Do it. Um, so I like some of the mm, darker characters, shall Do we it. say? Yeah. So I was in love with Severus Snape. Like he is my spirit animal. Yep. I'm Slytherin to the core. And so like basically <laughs> any ship that um had Severus Snape in it, I would read, except Hermione, because I, I don't know, I just, I couldn't get behind that for whatever reason. But like, I read a lot of snarry stuff. I read a lot of <laughs> snooping stuff. <laughs> there was, oh my God, there was just all kinds of like, crazy bullshit. So yeah, again, you can send the hate mail to me directly. That's fine. Um, <laughs> Dude, I love it. You know, honestly, like I was always like, uh, Dramione or Drake on Harry, but like I see like the dark intellectual appeal of of Snape, so no no oh, judgment yeah. here. Also, Tom, like how fucked up is Tom Riddle? I was like all about Tom, like time travel fic with like Tom Riddle and Hermione, or do, I thought Tom Riddle you? was so like dark and sexy, and it's like oh he's so, but he's like Hitler, so you're essentially whatever. But you know what? That's the great thing about fan fiction is that like what you like, right? Well, you want to know something funny about that? If we're gonna get on a fun a tangent, do um. It. I was researching the other day for various reasons, and some of the most popular Harry Potter uh, fan fiction on AO3 right now is Harry slash Tom Riddle um, time travel fan fiction. So yeah. it's like this big thing where, you know, back in my day, when I first discovered Harry Potter, you didn't see a whole lot of Harry like slashed with, you know, Tom Riddle or Voldemort. And now you see that. A lot more, and I'm not sure exactly why, <laughs> but it's there, man. I can't see the appeal. I always had to do like a time travel fit because, you know, obviously, like modern day Voldemort is like he looks like a snake man. He's like not sexy at all. <laughs> um, but I, I love kind of that redemptive uh, angle that if you're going to time travel and you're sending Harry or Hermione or whoever 
back to when Tom Riddle was at Hogwarts, it's going to be a redemption fic. It's going to be a character who's dark, who has experienced so much angst yes. in his personal life. He's an orphan. His mother and his father's relationship was really loveless. His mother maybe expressed love for him, but she died. Father wanted nothing right. to do. Like, oh, there's like so much angst and just All like... All that trauma and oh, stuff. Oh, poten- and yeah. potential for uh, redemption. So anyway, we'll end that tangent, but... Uh, I think it's, I totally understand the appeal, but, um, all that started on, uh, fictionality and other Harry Potter fandom specific archive sites. So. Oh yeah. There you go. Oh yeah. No, absolutely. I think my first one, I just want to mention real quick was a team fanfiction.net. I loved <laughs> the a team back in the eighties. And that's actually where my AO3 username comes from is from a fanfiction that got posted on ateamfanfiction.net so you know it doesn't exist anymore but (laughs) but it was very cool and i think that um just talking or piggybacking off that idea that a lot of these um fan run archives don't exist anymore i think it is important to point out that um even though these fan run archives were a lot of fun and they were really awesome for us fans to be able to go post uh you know fan fiction and read fan fiction they were still relatively volatile places just in the sense that they could be wiped off of the face of the internet at pretty much any time because like you said sarah these people were paying money right out of their own pockets to host these sites what if they run out of money one day what happens to the site right yep what if they die? Yep. yep. What if they die? What if someone hacks into the site? What if um, I I don't have specifics on this, but I have heard so many stories where um, some of these fan fiction archives were run by multiple mods. And there were instances where the mods would have drama mm-hmm. between them and get mad at each other. And so to get revenge on one another, they would start <laughs> deleting stuff. You know, and shutting down the archive oh. and stuff. So you could wake up one day and find the whole website just, you know, exploded into smithereens because the mods were fighting. Yeah. And maybe you had your Word document or whatever of your fic. Maybe you had that saved on your PC, but maybe you didn't. I think a lot of the sites still had comment type features, probably. I'm not totally yeah. sure. But any like comments or discussion around your stuff was totally gone if your fic wasn't totally gone altogether. Um, and so, yeah, as a fan fiction writer, putting your fic out there, there's no backstops, there's no guarantees. So, yeah, you were kind of at the mercy and the whim of the powers that be on the internet. And yeah, that's uh, expiring domains, stuff like that. Like you said, it's just you couldn't control it. Yeah. No, you couldn't. You had no control over it. So uh, while they were really fun places, you know, they could disappear at any time. Yep. And so a lot of these writers were having these experiences with sites going down or drama and stuff happening. And and also just people probably thinking like, wow, wouldn't it be cool if there was one place you could go and you could browse and you could have everything together? Um, So in 1998, a UCLA student, and I'm going to mispronounce his name, I think it's Xing Li, maybe? Yeah, I think that's how I pronounce it. Uh, UCLA student has this idea to launch a site using the UCLA servers, uh, which he used there and then eventually moved it for an idea called fanfic.net. Ah. Fanfic.net, which is uh, a lot of us, I think, 
Beth, we're kind of in the about the same generation. That's where, besides, I did you know technically start on Jedi Apprentice fan dimension, but a lot of my fanfic experiences from then on out were fanfic.net, and this was great. This was a big change. So you had these Usenet groups and mailing lists, you know, who are communicating on uh, those platforms, and maybe they were also communicating on their fandom-specific websites like Gossamer Archive. But this was interesting. I'm just going to read a quick post that the founder and CEO of fanfic.net made on the Usenet group Alt-TVX Files Creative, ATXC. So this was just a few weeks before fanfic.net was started in September 98. Uh, Xing says... Hi, some of you probably know me as the webmaster of the Definitive X-Files Source website, www.xlpro.com slash X-Files. So this guy was an X-Files fan, actually. But most of you have no clue. Well, I have just acquired the rights to http colon slash slash www.fanfiction.net. And being the devoted X-Files fan I am, X-Files will be the feature the site will be 100% cold fusion for those techies out there. In other words, it will be fully automated. Ranking, search, submission, editing, etc. Just to name a few. I'm working overtime to have the site open to the web community by November 8th, just in time for the new X-Files season. I would like to make it the best possible fanfiction portal on the net. And to do so, I would love to hear some comments and suggestions from all the writers here on this news group to what functions you would like to have. Your input is very critical and will help to shape the site. Thanks for your time. So it's kind of neat that you get that post on ATXC and lots of people commented. One of the big things that people, I don't know if this was before the site was launched or after and people seeing, but one of the big things about fanfic.net then and now was that it had advertising. And what Shink said about advertising was that the ad space Quote, the ad space you see above is used to cover the cost of the server. But that means to a lot of fans, that means revenue is now involved, which was a big thing with the purges and people's nervousness about what could happen if a intellectual property owner got mad at you. As long as you could say you're not using money, at least you had that to say. But now if you post your fan fiction on fanfic.net and there's ad revenue involved, that could jeopardize the site's status as non-commercial or or your position as an author is you're not doing this for commercial purposes. So that kind of made people nervous that maybe f the fair use clause of the Copyright Act would not cover them. So it was a big thing. People loved the idea, but it made some people nervous. And uh, yeah, and this will kind of go into probably our talk about purchases and stuff, Beth, but it was immediately successful. I, I think by... Well, let's see. I don't have any stats in like what year, but it was it was huge. Like it was at one time and it's probably today still the second biggest. I'm not sure. But it was at one time is the largest fanfic archive on the Internet. Fanlore. There's a quote from Fanlore here that says, quote, it contributed to a more centralized fandom experience for readers and writers and removed technical and financial barriers many face when trying to host their works online. Its submission rules changed several times during that decade, inspiring debate and discussion, and one type of content should be accepted on multi-fandom archive. Uh, and this goes into the purge. The fanfiction.net purge of NC-17 content in 2002 was particularly influential, angering many fans and beginning a fanish migration of many authors of adult fanfiction sought a more inclusive home. But the, 
the people, the things that people loved were browsing, filtering, favoriting, following, uh, communities, reviews, all that stuff was like what people wanted. So it was, there was a lot of good and bad involved, but it was largely success. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, certainly by the early 2000s. I, I can't quite recall what year I discovered fanfiction.net for the first time, but it had to have been like early, early, early 2000s because I remember reading primarily um, like Harry Potter fanfiction on there. Um, so I, I think it's funny going back to um, Xing Li's uh, hope that it would be more of like a home for, for X-Files. I'm curious to know when the site launched if that was true or not, because by the time I got there, it was like Harry Potter Central. So, Oh, yeah. <laughs> I know. I would be curious. I can't remember. Like, I know I was reading Harry Potter by fifth grade, which is probably 2000 and uh, no, 2000, 2001. Somewhere in there, I was reading Harry Potter then. And it was just starting to, to kind of kick off and get big. And I'm sure there was obviously already fan fiction going on. Um, but by like mid 2000, I think I got an account because my username is StoryShark2005. So 2005 is when I officially started my account. I was lurking before then, but um, I remember I think at that point already, Harry Potter was the biggest fandom on the archive. Um, but I, I'm trying to remember. I think I do remember like they would have like a fic feature or stuff like that on the homepage. I don't totally remember. Yeah, I feel like they did used to at some point, because um, the site has changed so much, you know, from the time that, you know, from when we first started using it to now, and mm -hmm. lots of stuff has gone on. But yeah, like, I just remember really liking that you could choose, like, what rating of fic you wanted to read, you could choose like the type. Of course, they had like a whole section for just like my favorite type, which is the angst stuff. So they had yes. like, angst, hurt, comfort, you know, family, drama, you know, things like that. So it was kind of cool to be able to finally like go to this big archive and just search by the types of fic that yeah. you like. Because I think on the previous, a lot of those like Gossamer or those other archives, you could, they would have it like section, like programmed in this site. So you would click like on a, from a menu, like Star Trek Voyager had a site, I think. So you could go to yep. Janeway um, uh, 7 of 9, you could click there and then have a list of stories. And that was just the archiver's job to organize that stuff. So nothing was automated. You had to you know, code everything in to appear under the correct menus and get organized. If you wanted to submit another chapter or make a correction, I think you had to go to the host and like, you know, submit your new file and they would have to update it, you know, all that stuff like that. So everything being automated, searchable, like that was huge. Yeah, it absolutely was. And that it was done kind of automatically with computer programming instead of little elves in the background like coding it for us, you know, so that, yeah, it really kind of put the power back into the fans' hands a little bit that we could post and upload stuff that we wanted to. But of course, like you said, the site did have parts that were not as great and not as gracious, right? Yes. Yeah, the advertising, uh, I think, was the biggest thing. And then the purchase, yeah. um, let's see, where do we have that? Well, fanfic.net, basically, it was the big site. And so when you have outside people like authors or big companies that are concerned about fanfiction, they go to fanfic.net's 
board or CEO or whatever, they go to them and they say, what are you going to do about this? So Anne Rice, for instance, she in particular is an author that does not like fan fiction, doesn't want it written about her, uh, is morally and commercially opposed to it, whatever. So her stuff, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, fanfiction.net just took her whole category out. You couldn't write Interview with a Vampire or Anne Rice stuff on fanfic.net. You could not post it. And she would send like cease and desist letters to authors. Nora Roberts had kind of the same stuff. So there were bans on works of specific authors. Um, 2002, RPF is banned from fanfic.net. So, you know, I'm a fan of like reading about the Beatles, for instance. I've read Beatles RPF and just other RPF. Like in 2009 with the new Star Trek reboot, I got really into uh, Chris Chris Pine, Zachary Quinto. Yeah. Which is like, (laughs) on one hand, I understand why people are like morally opposed to it. Like they won't read it or write it, but I loved it. And I, I mean, I'm of the opinion now in my fandom, you know, uh, evolution that I'm like, whatever, whatever it goes, as long as it's well-written. But anyway, 2002, fanfic.net bans all RPF. Um, and I, but I think there were people still getting around that, like band fic, especially has become popular, especially on like a platform like Wattpad. But also, just I think people were like, I can't remember how they they somehow got around that and were posting like, you know, One Direction fic under some kind of other category. I don't remember. There was some note about that, but anyway. But fanfic done that was basically trying to regulate and, and sort of please these outside interests and appease them and so authors again would just find that their stuff was deleted um and the big 2002 as well all these bands were in 2002 a fanfic.net was just like we're not doing this anymore explicit work banned anything with an nc-17 explicit rating was just gone totally gone they're not going to tell you that they're doing it they're not going to warn you your fic is just one day in 2002 totally gone and uh the ban on fanfic.net may have been one of the reasons why people moved to LiveJournal. I'm not totally sure. Yeah, actually, that did kind of move people a little bit off of fanfiction.net. Because I know when we were meeting about this uh, show a couple weeks ago, I mentioned that in the mid-2000s is when I remember reading most of the fanfiction that I read in the mid-2000s was not posted on fanfiction.net. After I got Harry Potter out of my system, I started, you know, reading other fandoms and things. And most of those fandoms, I found the fanfiction posted on LiveJournal instead of on fanfiction.net because in 2002, like you said, they did purges and banned all explicit fics. So people had to find other places to post this. And that is when they started migrating over to Live Journal, which launched in 1999. And it was kind of like this online platform that combined the best of personal website, news group, message board, you know, um, I think, wasn't there a messaging feature? on live journal at some point or something like that. Yes. Yeah. I do remember. Cause I got involved with like a, with again, like a star Trek 2009 reboot. And I was on yeah. live journal very briefly from like 2009, 2010. Um, so I never totally fully got the platform under my belt. Um, but I do remember finding they had communities um, and like subscription lists, which was cool. So I could be like a member of like a, I could subscribe to a Pinto group. And this was like modeled probably after like a mailing list type thing. Um, 
But uh, on that group, you know, I could find lists of Pinto fanfic and yeah, and I, or I could subscribe to an author, an author like Candle Beck, who I loved. I'm subscribed to her. Um, yeah, there's some cool stuff. And yeah, like you said, it was sort of a blog too. Like people would just kind of like almost in a Tumblr style, like make yeah. daily posts or whatever. Yep, you could make posts. You could post fan fiction. People used to post like pretty big multi-chapter fan fictions on their live journal pages and they would just link to the next chapter you know so that yeah. you could go from one chapter to the other to the other and i i read some pretty massive works on on life journal and uh yeah it was really interesting but i think i feel like i don't know a lot of authors i talk to like they refer to the live journal days almost as like the golden days of online fandom community Hmm. you know because like it was this really cool platform that did allow for a lot of um like intimate discussion between fans and people would describe becoming really good friends with the people that they would see on live journal on a regular basis you know and having those intense discussions and back and forth and kind of riffing off each other's works and stuff in a you know you know in a positive way so it was kind of just this like platform that really lent itself to more cohesive uh, tight-knit communities again yeah you had more freedom and like you said I, th- I think a lot of that conversation was facilitated because it's not moderated like some of those old news groups like those news yeah. groups a lot of them like the alt tvx files creative and then or alt you know alt.tv.star alt. trek whatever a lot of those groups broke up because of disagreements because Oh, we are allowing erotica. We're not allowing erotica. Well, on your live journal, it didn't matter. Like, you could make your own live journal, post your fic there. You could talk about whatever you wanted. Um, so you could do slash. You could do explicit. You could do um, whatever you wanted. It it also, the new scripts were text only. Live journal was a more robust platform. You could do fan art. You know, you could do GIFs, multimedia, there's a note here, chat room fix. Oh, so people would like post. So it's just like the format. You could get really creative with the kind of the style of your fan fiction. Um, and and, yeah. and the, the software encoding would support that format. So it wasn't just like plain text. Like you could get creative with it. So I think that was that was part of it. Absolutely. There is one thing I forgot to put on this uh, this list here, but one thing that I remember, and we still do this today, but um, you would see a lot of people post um, prompts on LifeJournal, mm-hmm. right? So a prompt in a particular fandom, and then writers would uh, respond in the comments to that prompt, and they would just write like a you know a short fic about that prompt Um, and and then others would come in and build off of that. And it was this really like crazy, cool, collaborative uh, feature of, of live journal fandom where you had a lot of prompts going on and writers working together to collaborate. And it was this really cool thing. I think too, um, I didn't write this down, but now that you said that probably fandom specific um, events like Yuletide or exchanges, Mm -hmm. I bet a lot of that started on Live Journal. I know Ast- yeah. Astolod, I think, started the old tide. Yep. That was that was it seemed like that was like people were still cross posting to fanfic.net, but especially a lot of the slash authors, explicit authors, they're all moving over to Live Journal in two thousand two after that ban. So that really and that's I think that's why even today, like 
There was actually one of our guests next week, older than Netflix. I saw some post that they posted about um, it was like the breakdown of the type of fic that appears on the big. You call them the big three archives now, which is yeah. Ao3, Fanfic.net, and Wattpad. And right. it was like Ao3 by far had way more slash and way more explicit fic, where Fanfic.net was way more uh, male female romance, gen, you know, non explicit stuff. And Wattpad was kind of a mix of the two. Um, but I think if if you're like specifically, and to me, it's like the better fic too, like more literary. I don't I don't know what makes it that way, but I feel like the better fic soul in AO3. But it seems like a lot of people, beginner or that like want to avoid the slash, they stay on fanfic.net to this day. And AO3 is like, I don't know. To me, it's snobby, but it's like the better authors, the people that know their history <laughs> or the slash and the people who want to go to the explicit level are all on AO3 even now. Yeah, no, I would t- totally agree with you on those points. Um, you know, I, I used to love reading stuff on fanfiction.net. Don't get me wrong. But as I got older and my taste in, uh, you know, more sophisticated literature started, like, you know, affecting the things that I would read. Um, yeah, like all of the best stuff is on AO3. And I'm not sure if that's just because the age, like the average age of the user on AO3 is older, or if we just hold ourselves to a higher standard on AO3 or what it is exactly. But I would agree that most of the, um, you know, more sophisticated pieces of work are definitely hosted there. We don't have great statistics on, you know, how old fan fiction authors and writers are, but you do always hear that cliche that like, oh, fanfic writers, they're all like teenagers. You know, the average age is 12 to 17 or something like that, which is so crazy. Like all of the authors I know are 30 plus or 25 plus. Um, And so I think part of that is just that nobody's able to do a survey because most people are anonymous. They're not going to give their age on their author page or whatever. And and the ones that are more apt to do that, that don't remember stuff like personal privacy <laughs> are like <laughs> kids, you know, of like the Gen, was it Gen Z, whatever, the, the, the younger kids, like 20 and younger. Yeah, the Gen Z crowd. They're just like more likely, like I see those asks on Tumblr, like, Oh, this is just for fun. Like, you know, what's your name? What's your favorite food? What, what, how old are you? Like, just giving all this personal information, which I'm more open about it than a lot of people. But definitely as you go down that generational chart, kids that don't remember a time before the internet, when your mom would be like, you know, worrying about chat room predators on AOL, you know, we all got that lecture, but these kids don't. They're born with a smartphone in their hand and... So anyway, I think that a lot of the authors, especially on AO3, you have people that were writing in the 80s and the 90s, whatever, that are in their 40s, 50s, 60s, still writing. So I think that's cool that um, we really do have mature, amazing fandom oldies uh, still writing. So I, I shouldn't say fandom oldies. That's offensive, probably. <laughs> No, but we have some just outstanding folks who have been, you know, around the block and they're like, OG, you know, they're so OG and they're just these veteran writers that are amazing because they've been at it for so long, you know? It's pretty amazing. Um, So anyway, and LiveJournal is still around, um, but it was sold in 2005 and then seven. And a lot of people... uh, Moved over to Dreamwidth, which is run by LiveJournal employees, but people still use it. 
you know, besides LifeJournal, there were other sites and things that people would post fan fiction to. I'm probably the only one that remembers WWOMB, which stood for, oh God, what does it stand for? Wonderful World of Make-Believe. That's what it stands for. Wonderful World of Make-Believe. And it was like, I'm pretty sure it was all like spicy, explicit fic on Wonderful World of Make-Believe. And it was this like, it was so funny because it was kind of like, it had this underground kind of vibe to it. There was a, like a, a warning on the site that nobody was supposed to link back to it, oh. you know, so it wouldn't be like known and it wouldn't be on anyone's radar. So like you could never link back to it. You just knew that it existed and then you would go there and read stories and stuff. So, yeah, but that that launched in 1999. So that was kind of a companion, you know, ah. to the whole fanfiction.net era. Yeah, that's earlier than I thought it would be. Nice. Yeah, yeah. It, it's been around for a long time. I don't think that it's still around in the sense that you can't – I don't think you can post to it anymore. Mm. It, um, it actually moved hosting platforms, I think, and now it's actually called squidge.org, and I think you can still post on Squidge. I don't know how many people do, but um, but yeah, it's still there. <laughs> people can read the, the stories on the sites and stuff. So that was definitely one that I frequented quite a bit. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's the CD backroom of fanfic.net. Yeah, it was. It was like the CD backroom. You know, like in the movies where you have to go to the door and knock on the door, yes. you know, the speakeasy and get the password <laughs> and stuff. <laughs> it's kind of like the internet speakeasy of fanfiction. That's amazing. But, uh, <laughs> um, now, this next one, I don't remember. I, do you remember this next one, Sarah? Quizilla? I don't. Have you ever heard of that? <laughs> I had never heard of it either until I started doing the uh, the research for it. But apparently, Quizilla launched in 2002, and it was this site where kids could come and make their own online quizzes, right? And then they could send those quizzes to their friends and have their friends take the quizzes. So it was supposed to be like this interactive, like, fun game where you could make games up and share them with your <laughs> friends and stuff. But what people started to do is these kids were taking this platform meant for quizzes and they were writing their own choose your own adventure fan fiction off of this quiz platform. I love the ingenuity of the internet sometimes. Like some corporate hack is like, let's make this quiz thing so dumb kids can send stupid quizzes to their friends like, what's your favorite color? What's your favorite sport? And people are like, ah, choose your own adventure fan fiction. Fuck yeah. What if you're... Harry and you walk into the locker room and Draco Malfoy uh, is standing there. What do you do? A, smooch him on the mouth. B, punch him in the face. C, throw a broom at him. Choose your own adventure. Yeah, that's exactly how it was, man. That's exactly how it was, man. And it was so great because, like, just the ingenuity of that, you know? And I imagine that it would take a user quite a long time. To put together a whole choose your own adventure fan fiction and to input that into the Quizilla platform. So yeah. like kudos to those folks who were doing that. Didn't you <laughs> I, I remember we were discussing this. Didn't you tell me that that was the origin of the uh, the citrus scale? So I don't know exactly if it was the origin or if it originated on fanfiction.net. What I do know is that the citrus scale was used on Quizilla when the site decided that it wanted to purge all non-PG content in 2006. 
that happened. And they were like, okay, we're starting to get explicit, like choose your own adventure fan fiction on Quizilla. We must do something. It's for the children. <laughs> you know? And so they go in there and they start purging all this shit in 2006. Well, these writers who are very smart started on the, on the front cover of their quizzes. If it was explicit, they would put the citrus scale on the front cover so that the purgers who were looking for explicit fan fiction, all they would see was like a citrus, you know, like a lemon. Yeah. Like a lemon or a lime or a grapefruit. And the purgers had no idea what that meant, yeah. but we did right as the readers. And so that was like code for us to know like, Oh, cool. <laughs> Spicy, juicy fan fiction right this way, you know? And, uh, and it was kind of funny because the owner of Quizilla years after he was giving this interview and he was just laughing because he was like, you know, we did everything that we could think of to try to shut all that explicit stuff down. And these people were just so smart and they just came up with all these ways to get around the rules and stuff, including the citrus scales. So, you know, there's a little fandom history for you. <laughs> That's pretty cool. And I think even today I see people use the term, uh, is lemon explicit or is lime? I think lemon is. Yeah, I th- I, I'm pretty sure it's lemon. And like grapefruit is like the real fucked up stuff, right? <laughs> like that. But lemon, yeah, lemon especially, you still see in in descriptions of fanfic. Like not that often, but like the OG fans, you'll still see people like use the tag lemon or lemon fic, you know, something like that. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Well, and I remember even back in the day when you know back when we were talking about those personal fan fiction, like personal fan sites on GeoCities and Angel Fire. I remember like going to these fan fictions and people describing their fanfics as lemons. And, you know, as a 14 year old kid, I'm like, what the fuck does that mean? I click on it, you know, and I found out real quick what a fucking lemon means. Okay. But like we were using that shit like way back, you know, in the day and stuff. So yeah, when you see someone using the citrus scale today, you know that that person's been around in fandom for some time. (laughs) like og gang signs like showing the lemon (laughs) that's amazing i love that yeah yeah so anyway quizilla it shut down for good in 2014 so rest in peace quizilla but um you know you had dream with that was created kind of as a response to live journal and that came out in 2009 i'm not as familiar with dream with to be honest with you all i know about dream with is that that's where everybody hosts their fandom kink memes now which thank god because <laughs> i love those things but yeah they're they're kind of all hosted on dream with now yeah and i feel like i see some og writers who probably were big in live journal and don't like the social media aspect of tumblr you still get that kind of blog message board a l- less I don't know. I don't know how to call it except less like a social media platform um, and more just like a blog for you and your friends. Um, the people that loved LiveJournal moved over to DreamWith after LiveJournal was sold and kind of sold out, quote unquote. So DreamWith is still going on, but just not as many people probably using it. Which is a shame, too, because my understanding is that DreamWith was actually fan created, you know? Yes, and so they were really designed to be a place that was a lot safer for fanish activity than Live Journal would have been, you know. Yeah. So, um, you know, I don't use it myself, so I don't really have any personal experience except, okay, I admit I'm on the kink mings for Cobra Kai. Okay, oh, yeah. I'm there like every day. But um, other than that, 
<laughs> yeah. So like, I don't really know a lot of people that use it, which is a shame because uh, I think it was really meant to be the next big thing after Live Journal. It just never happened. So. Yeah, I mean, I would say, so that was 2009. Um, We'll kind of back up a little bit time-wise. Let's talk about these purges, because basically from 2001 up to 2007 and 8, and some stuff happened after that, but there's a few things that happened with purges, and then we'll talk also about some legal stuff and then people monetizing, trying to monetize fan fiction that all happened in a pretty short period of like 2000 to 2007. So yeah, we mentioned the fanfic.net purge in 2002. That actually happened again in 2012. I should remember that because I was around there in 2012, but that, you know, some people probably publishing explicit fic, probably using a tag like a rated R tag because I I assume they didn't have an NC-17 tag at that point, or they didn't even have tags, I should say. It's just the, you know, what you classify your fic when you're uploading it as. Right. Um, and then, of course, as you said, Quizilla had that purge where they were filtering through and then fans used the citrus scale to get around that. Um, Live Journal was sold in 2005. In 2007, it was sold again. And there was a purge in 2008. And you might have read a little bit more about that than I did. The the bold through strike through purge, uh, 2007 yeah. and 2008. Right, because it happened twice. It happened twice. Um, I I was not a user of LiveJournal, so the way that I'm explaining it probably might not make sense to a lot of people. Because I I I never use LiveJournal except to 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 read other people's fan fictions. But my understanding was, um, on LiveJournal you could connect your profile to other people's profile, kind of like with Facebook, where yes. you become friends on Facebook with you know people that you want to connect with and allow into your social circle, and that same thing. Uh, happened on live journal and uh one day in 2007 a bunch of fans woke up to find that a lot of profile names on their friends lists were suddenly struck through with like a what would you call that sarah like a yeah just a line it's like yeah just a line through through, it right yeah just like crossed out yeah crossed out meaning that their whole entire blog got deleted suspended deleted yeah i'm not sure how that works i do it's funny because i was on live journal in 2010 and i do remember seeing those i remember seeing those accounts and i think also as people's maybe their accounts expire like you go on there and i see that quite a bit with people's usernames the strike through so that's either from a purge or maybe from someone just deleting their account or something like that but yeah those accounts were deleted um live journal was trying to get rid of what they considered tasteless or illegal content so this is i think this is from fan lore but people were banned that were linked to interests that included child pornography incest pedophilia rape domestic violence bdsm and it's funny that now we're kind of more enlightened and like bdsm is like a legitimate it's like a sexual practice but people often equated stuff like homoeroticism with bdsm with you know, pedophilia, like all that stuff was thrown into the bucket as like deviant behavior. So as well as it lists here, journals that listed things like murder, crime, drugs, cocaine, theft. So they're getting rid of like gay porn as well as like drug stuff. You know, it's just like, <laughs> it's so funny. It's yeah. just crazy broad. And of course, Live Journal probably didn't plan ahead on how to do this well. They probably just did like some kind of server search. And like any anytime you if you mentioned incest, like say you were into like supernatural Sam Dean, like Wincest, you know? Right. Your journal's probably gone. 
Because yeah. at some point, somebody probably has highlighted the word wincess is like, delete that journal. So even though the, you look at this stuff and you go, oh, God, child porn, incest, pedophilia, why wouldn't they get rid of that? Well, it's fan fiction and there's nuance and gray areas and they don't have the type of time or intelligence to sift through this and see really what they should ban or shouldn't ban. And I always say that censorship is a real slippery slope. You can ban one thing that maybe makes sense to you to ban, but that sets a precedent and that becomes very dangerous as far as free speech goes. But anyway, whatever. This is a private company. Unfortunately for fan fiction writers, um, their shit was just gone. Their blogs were gone. No warning, no notice. Again, in this pattern of purges, you just wake up one day and your content's gone. So that was the kind of the strike through ban in 2007. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm so glad that you brought up the censorship issue because like this was like just just, just an absolutely crazy, you know, censorship. I don't know if I want to use the word experiment, but I mean, like you said, I'm sure that they went in and they were like, oh, well, of course, why wouldn't we want to get rid of all of this content? But what we found, historically speaking, is that when we enact censorship, what what actually ends up happening is we end up hurting the very groups that were so-called trying to protect with the censorship actions in the first place. And a lot of marginalized people end up getting hurt um, because these, you know, censorship policies end up so broad that they just hurt everybody. So absolutely is what happened there. Um, you know, we saw something like this also happen on Tumblr. <laughs> I joined Tumblr late. Like, I didn't actually get a Tumblr till like, what, 2021? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So I wasn't here for this. And Sarah, I think you may have joined Tumblr right after this happened. Yep. But yeah, right, you know, after the LJ, you know, strike throughs and purges in 2007 and 8, then you had the Tumblr purges of 2018 and 19. And uh, some places on the internet refer to that as the snappening. <laughs> because- oh, yeah. Yeah. Why is that? I think it may be a playoff of an M. Night Shyamalan. Oh, The uh, Happening. The Happening. (laughs) That's hilarious. But yeah, like they were trying to get rid of not safe for work content on Tumblr. And so, you know, again, with the censorship policies, they were very broad and heavy handed with how they did it. And so they weren't taking the time to really check and see if the content they were deleting was actually like bad, illegal stuff. They were just... I don't know if Sarah probably going off t- tags, don't you think? Just going oh, off yeah. tags, just deleting it right I off. I don't even understand because one of them I do remember. So I joined in 2019 and this happened in 2018. And I was uh, heavy into the Cobra Kai fandom. And I remember a blog, uh, Amy, that I follow. Um, her username is cutesy name here. And she posts a lot about like William Zabka and the character of Johnny Lawrence. I'd have to ask her, but I recall that she had this GIF set from the movie – um oh shit i'm gonna forget it now that i'm talking about it anyway he's shirtless in it and he's like it's like a make out like pre-sex kind of scene where they dim the lights sort of but he's shirtless and he's making out with a woman and i think amy's got like they either took that post off or they or they temporarily suspended her account something like that because of a not safe for work um reasoning which is so silly because it's just like shirtless william zabka looking very sexy and it's like nsfw so clearly whatever they were using to like filter criteria that they wanted to ban it was just like not i mean there's not there's not a good way because you rely on people to tag it a computer scanning a gif set 
doesn't know if William Zapka is shirtless or, you know, like what's going on that gypsy. You have to have a human make those decisions. But if you're trying to do a, a purge on that scale, you simply can't. So you rely on software to do that. And it just inevitably... And the software doesn't know the context. No. Yeah. Yeah. So it's so stupid. So that's... And it's so funny to me because that's 2018. It's like you'd think that and the internet, we've kind of established as a culture that like, we don't want to privatize internet, we don't want censorship, we're all adults here, we can determine, you know, if you're on a work computer, you probably shouldn't be looking at porn or whatever. But that doesn't mean that people should ban it or censor it. So it's so funny to me that this happens in 2018. It's like, Jesus Christ, like, haven't we realized that like, censorship is just not the way to go. But they did it. <laughs> they did. And all it really did was make people mad. Yeah. You know, um, I, I know that there was a lot of talk of people like migrating from Tumblr somewhere else because they were just so upset. Because my understanding is that there were a lot of authors who were actually posting their fan fiction on Tumblr. Like there were there were works right. that were just posted there and they got nuked. And so there, I know there was talk about you know, possible migration somewhere else. But honestly, like, there's nowhere else for us to really go right now. <laughs> you know, so I mean, you can see a, a pattern emerging with like, you know, private hosts, uh, there's problems there with having somebody privately host your website or servers, you know, they can, they can expire, they can decide that they don't like that content. So you get purges. Uh, legal actions is kind of our next bullet point to hit that which we've kind of touched on with like cease and desists, but it's just with fan fiction, inevitably you are writing derivative content. So content that's based on existing intellectual property. Um, and there wasn't at the time, the seventies, eighties, nineties, a lot of legal precedent, uh, that at least that a lot of intellectual property owners knew about. So Beth, I know you looked into like George Lucas and the Lucasfilm thing. There were a lot of people like George Lucas who didn't understand it, to me it's like they probably didn't know what it was and they had lawyers tell them like hey you should really get on this send them a cease and desist letter these people don't have lawyers they're going to get freaked out and they're going to stop writing fan fiction yeah you know what's funny is you know we've talked off and on throughout this episode about gen for gen fic versus slash fic and um you know george lucas didn't really have a problem with fanzines for star wars existing he didn't really have a problem with fans writing like pg or g fan fiction but when he found out that there were fans out there who were making fanzines that uh, specifically published slash Star Wars fan fiction, he lost it. You know, like he was so upset about it. He didn't want his brand or his characters being involved with stuff like that. You know, he just <laughs> didn't like it. And, Poor uh, George. He's I know. He was like so shocked by it. And I was like, why, George? Why? Um, but he started like doing this funny thing where he would keep tabs on these fanzines. And anytime that he found out about a new fanzine, he would write that fanzine um, producer a letter and be like, oh, hey, um, I would really love it if you could send me four copies of every fanzine that you produce. That would be really great. And of course, these fanzine producers are like, probably really excited to hear from George Lucas and they're like, Oh my gosh, he loves our fanzine. So they're all sending him like copies of all of their zines. And that's how he was keeping tabs Aww. on who was doing what in their fanzine and who was writing what. Um, 
And he did have his lawyers back in the 70s send several cease and desist letters to producers of fanzines that were publishing slash Star Wars fan fiction oh, because man. he didn't like it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's just I love picturing. It's like on one hand, I'm like, oh, fuck you, George, you homophobe. And then on the other hand, I'm, I'm picturing like, yeah, he's just like this old stodgy man from a certain generation where you didn't talk about, you know, sexuality and some lawyer hands him some Han Solo Luke slash porn and, oh, oh, no, what's this? Oh, no. You know, just like probably shocked the poor guy, you know, and just like. Yeah, I think it was shocking more than anything. He handled it terribly. The fact that he was trying to keep tabs on these zines, you're like, oh, my God. Now we sort of have established an environment of, like, non-commercial, transformative works. Intellectual property owners know that we're not really a threat and they can leave us alone. But in the 70s, George Lucas had just created Star Wars and this is, like, all new. He has no fuck – he's not – he probably doesn't even know how to get on the internet. He's just, like, this old guy who's created Star Wars. He's probably kind of defensive about it. And all of a sudden his lawyers are slapping this, like – erotica novel on his desk like what do you want to do about it george right so i'm a bit of two minds i wish he had handled it better i wish he hadn't intimidated fans with those cease and desist letters um but i just like it's sort of funny to me to picture like turtley like it's so funny even how george lucas talks like oh he's what he's what he's doing what with luke and oh 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 my <laughs> you know it's like I do remember this like one horrible, embarrassing moment. Like, so reading fan fiction in the late 90s, early 2000s on our family computer, there was a very short time where I'm like, oh, I don't want to like look weird. Like, I'm sitting here for hours and like make excuses to my parents about what I'm doing. I'm going to print this fan fiction off so I can read it in my room. So I remember one time I like printed off this like, it was like a Star Wars porn. It was like um, Endgame. It was Padme and Obi-Wan or something. But like she was like a sex slave to the emperor or something. Oh, my God. And like God. I printed it off. And the f- the first sentence was like, I am the emperor's whore. <laughs> and I remember I printed it off and kind of forgot about it. And I remember my dad like walked over to me one time and he just blank faced. And he's like, uh think you printed something off and he handed it to me and i looked down and i was like oh my god and i looked at it and i just looked at him and he just like walked away and we never oh talked about it oh my god. but i i feel bad that he had to see that and like i mean he would understand he's my father he loves me but it's probably just not a conversation like either of us like had any interest in having so i'm probably just sympathetic to george lucas because i picture him as like my father's age <laughs> But anyway, I don't want to tell anybody that, like, George Lucas was doing the right thing. He was clearly doing the wrong thing. Clearly, history is not kind to his stance on fan fiction. But I think he was, like, a confused man that was making ungenerous decisions and intimidating people, unfortunately. Which is unfortunate, too, because Gene Roddenberry of Star Trek took a very different – like, as far as I know, Gene Roddenberry never took a negative stance towards um, fan fiction. In fact, there's so much – Kirk's box subtext in the show, you almost think like he had to know that they were almost writing it in. <laughs> you yeah. know, like weird erotic uh, back rubs and right. confar and so much touching and yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. Anyway, legal action against fans, that whole George Lucas thing, it's both hilarious and sad. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. And you're right. George Lucas did try to pressure Paramount 
into cracking down on the Star Trek fans for their, you know, illicit oh. fan fictions as well. And they were not interested in doing that at the time. Oh, good for them. Um, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> Well, time is money, and it's like, I'm sure they were like, George, is anyone making money off it? And he says, no, but it's dirty, <laughs> you know? And they're like, well, George, they're not making money. Lawyers charge by the hour, so we're not going to do anything about it. So, um, but yeah, so what's so cease and desist letters, I think were not common, but they happened in the mid-90s. Uh, you know, X-Files fans. I, I see we have a note about the Simpsons and Millennium and some other fandoms. Yep. Well, remember that in the mid-90s is when people had their personal, like, Angel Fires and GeoCity oh. sites, right? And so, yep. yeah, it was a lot of those personal, like, <laughs> websites in the like, 90s. shut your website down, Molly Scolder Lover, XX1155. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Because a lot of them were hosting images that came from the original content. I know that on my, you know, very beautiful Space Cases personal fandom website, I had content and images that I pulled from, you know, the original show and stuff. I never got hit with a cease and desist from Nickelodeon, mm. thank God. But I think that's what was happening here as Fox was sending cease and desist to all these different, you know, local run fan sites because of, of content and things like that. Um, Viacom and Paramount cracked down in 1999 and went after Star Trek fans. Uh, a mm. lot of them got cease and desist letters and a lot of them had to shut their their sites down. Um, so that got pretty crazy. Man, that sucks. But yeah, I would say that this whole time, they've had a fair use exemption under copyright law, but people just didn't know that. And when someone comes after you with a lawyer and an official looking letter and strong language, like as a fan, you just don't know what your rights are. And so it's it's easy for a lawyer to intimidate any old fan into like shutting their Unfortunately, shutting their site down, taking their content off. And it's really, it's just a power dynamic that's kind of sad. Do you want to talk about Potter War real fast? <laughs> Potter War is one of my favorites just because it ends so spectacularly. But kind of following in the footsteps of Viacom and, you know, Paramount and, and Lucasfilm, um, Warner Brothers, who bought the rights out to uh, to Harry Potter, um, in the mid 2000s, of course, and I think we covered this is you had a lot of personal fan sites, uh, that were Harry Potter esque. You had the Harry Potter archive sites that were hosting the fan fiction. Um, so you just had a lot of this going around and Warner Brothers said it would be a really great idea to start slapping cease and desist letters to owners of websites that had either used words and terms that were owned by the Harry Potter franchise. And they could even be innocuous words like the word cauldron or oh, geez. the word, you know, Harry Potter. Well, obviously the word Harry Potter, but like, you know, even if you had names that could be tied to the Harry Potter franchise in your domain name, they could go after you for that even, you know? So they were going after all of these different websites. What they didn't know was that the vast majority of these websites that they were going after in the 2000s were owned by children. <laughs> we're talking like the 12, 13, 14-year-old fans who were so excited about Harry Potter so they would make these websites, and they were the ones getting slapped with these cease and desist letters. So um, there was this one girl... Her name is Heather, and she got really upset when she started seeing this stuff happen. 
Mm-hmm. So she actually made contact with this man out in London. His name was Alastair Alexander. He was 33 years old. He lived in London. He had also found out about all of these children <laughs> getting these cease and desist letters from Warner Brothers over Harry Potter content online. And he was so mad about it that he decided to post up a protest website against Warner Brother, right? So he does this. And then this girl, Heather, contacts him and says, you know, we should really work together and see what we can do about this because this is just not okay. So Alistair and Heather worked together to um, actually form this worldwide Warner Brothers, I guess, boycott, in other words. So they organized this worldwide boycott against Harry Potter merchandising. So they said, nobody buy the merchandising and let's hit them where it hurts, right? So they we can show them that they can't push us around like this. And their strategy was actually really ingenious because they got the press to cover their story. Awesome. And the press really like like hit home to the fact that you know these are children that that warner brothers is going after like it doesn't make a global corporation look very good when the press is reporting that you're like you know threatening legal action against children jesus christ (laughs) you know but uh but yeah eventually the boycott was successful they lost so much money in that boycott that they finally decided to drop all of their lawsuits and all of their cease and desist letters against these people and uh, and let them do what they wanted to do because it just wasn't worth the bad press for them at that point. And I just love that story because, you know, Heather was like a 15 year old girl at the time. You know, and she's like leading this Harry Potter like online revolt, you know, against Warner Brothers, and and she won. So God damn, that's that's really. Cool. But can you imagine that though? Like Warner Brothers sending you a letter in the mail, oh my God. and you're like a twelve year old kid, you're like mom, you know? uh, what's this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. On fan lore, some of these kids that got hit with cease and desist had to hire lawyers. Jesus, you know. Can you imagine that? 12 years old, you have to hire a lawyer. Yeah, for Warner Brothers, it's not the best uh, blue sky kind of uh, press that they want. Oh, you're you're going after children? Oh, well, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's not great, guys. Yeah, it was a PR nightmare towards the end there. But I mean, it's just, it's just another example of, you know, these big corporations trying to hit fans with legal action. Yeah. To get them to stop what they're doing, whether it's a fan site, whether it's fan fiction, whether it's, you know, fan art or whatever. There's a there's a president for that. So, well, yeah, so that's so you can kind of see all that from George Lucas and Star Wars and Star Trek to all up in the Potter War, which was 2001, 2002. So you can see fans getting frustrated and fan fiction writers getting frustrated. There's no real home that they're safe. Um, corporations still don't respect fans. Um, and then the last kind of straw I would say is there's a couple of stories we want to hit with these kind of a pattern of behavior from corporations that decide that they want to try and kind of appeal to fans and use fans to make money. So the first of those was a, was a website called Fandom Inc., so this was not specifically fan fiction, but if you go on fan lore and kind of look up to the the escalating circumstances that lead to the founding of AO3, Fandom Inc. is kind of mentioned alongside something called Fanlib. And Fanlib is a bigger deal, but the Fan Inc. thing, did you read about this at all? 
I read your notes here. Before you put your notes in here, I was not even aware that fandom dot or fandom ink was even a thing. So you know way more about that than I do. I, I just kind of yeah, researched this on fan lore. I hadn't heard about this. So this is basically just an attempt by a corporation, a dot com startup in nineteen ninety-nine to kind of capitalize on fan enthusiasm for their passions and fandom. So it was like yeah, it's this dot-com startup called Fandom Inc. What this company would do is they would seek out independent fan sites, so fan sites hosted by fans, and bring them under the umbrella as a fan domain. So if you were an X-Files fan, Fandom Inc. might try and like bring you under their wing and help you out with hosting, and you would be like an associated site that they would kind of like funnel traffic to you. One of their taglines or one of their approaches was like, this is a Phantom Inc. is by fans and for fans. And Phantom Inc. would also have merchandising and like fan articles and fan news and stuff like that. But the uh, they also had advertising on the site and uh, Phantom Discourse, like message boards and stuff. But of course, you could tell if you were on that site that this was definitely like a controlled by the corporation. So the merchandise in the ad space was generating revenue. Some of those, the fan hosts would get a cut of that. So they were trying to keep these like fan domain hosts happy, but they also, Fandom Inc. would also kind of control the discourse. So if there was a post on the Fan Inc. website or a fan domain sub website, those posts would be deleted if the corporate image was damage or the content wasn't okay, you know, explicit content, stuff like that, they would regulate that. So people kind of figured out that basically Fan Inc. was making money off the backs of fan enthusiasm. <laughs> the kind of the last straw of Fandom Inc. was in October 2000, Fandom Inc. threatened a fan named Carol Burrell. She actually owned the domain name fandom.tv. So Fandom Inc. said, well, we have the trademark on the word fandom which obviously is like total bullshit. So they threatened to, <laughs> they tried to trademark They tried to trademark the word fandom, which is just like you oh assholes. God. So they tried to sue her. Um she told other fans what was happening to her. Those fans told other fans. I think PR I don't have written down exactly what happened, but basically the PR became I think bad enough that Fandom Inc. backed off and they were gone I think in a year. I have written down here nineteen ninety nine to two thousand. So that was kind of a failed oh, yeah. experiment where they tried to bully a fan, people found out, and then that folded. But the big thing that happened, 2007 was a big year, and one of the reasons it was a big year for fans was fan lib. And this is really, in my opinion, I don't know about you, Beth, but it seems like this is sort of the straw that broke the camel's back. So fanfiction.net is rocking and rolling over there. People have concerns. Fanfiction is purging, explicit fic, whatever, but in general, it's doing well. Well, Fanlib wanted to kind of do a similar thing to archive fanfiction, kind of, not really, but um, they wanted to make it splashy and shiny and essentially corporate-y. So this was a website that started in 2002. People think the word fan lib means fan library, but it's actually a play on the word mad lib. Did you ever do those like mad lib booklets? Yeah, where you put in like the adjectives and the nouns and things like that to come up with a little story. Yep. 
Basically, this company had this like proprietary kind of Mad Lib software. Um, <laughs> this is hilarious. And the and the website at the time was called My Two Sentences, and and it's uh, infuriating because sentences is spelled with a C. <laughs> <laughs> it was just annoying to me to look at. But they had this ad campaign and they described their website as our software and services unleash the creativity of entertainment fans while delivering more value for marketers equals management for producers equals fun for fans. Leading companies like Pepsi and Showtime Networks are discovering how FanLib's groundbreaking online experiences produce vibrant communities, closer customer relationships, and market-friendly consumer-generated media. Like, is that the grossest, most corporate marketing bullshit you've ever heard? You read between the, you know, re read in the subtext there between the lines, and it's all about generating the income for the company and the site. Absolutely. So 2007, it was my two sentences. They discovered that that software could be used to produce fan fiction, sort of. So in March of 2007 to April 2007, the site launched, or it was in beta, something like that. It was uh, fully in launch by May of 2007. And May of 2007 was like a big month. So kind of keep that month in your mind. Um, the site FanLib was closed by 2008. So, Or actually, they announced it... In July of 2008, it was done by August of 2008. So they sort of did give people a little bit of a heads up, but there was a lot of content lost. But essentially what it was, uh, FanLib would partner with an actual, like like a TV show. One of the big ones was The L Word. Um, but they would partner with other TV shows and it was like corporate, you know, corporations who spoke the same language and like, hey, these fan fiction writers are out there. We can make some money. They would hold these fan fiction contests. And it wasn't really fan fiction contests. Essentially, there was like this Mad Lib style scene. It was this like canned scene that you would create, but you would submit the fic to the contest. Your rights as a writer would be forfeit. But if you won, you could see this like scene actually be written into the show on TV. So people probably kind of thought, oh, if I submit my fanfic, like my ideal could be on TV, but it wasn't even really that like they weren't going to take any real risks like writing wise. They basically had you fill in the blanks and whatever the most like whitewashed vanilla idea was would probably win. So it was like crowd writing software, essentially. But they also did eventually host fanfiction. So let's see. And I think that happened late. Yeah. In any case, it was uh, in 2007 that FanLib added a multi-fandom fanfic archive, which they literally just copied the list from fanfic.net. They had a domain name, they had servers, they had software, and they had employees. Um, so they decided to actually add this fanfiction archive. But to fund the fanfic archive I'm trying to remember how they actually made money. If it was just ad space, I should have looked at this. Yeah, yeah, because I don't remember either. I, You know, all the times I've ever heard people describe FanLib, they made it sound like it was um, ad revenue based on actual visual ads on the site. But I never once went to FanLib's website, uh, so I don't. I don't know. Well, I think the big thing is that FanLib took venture capital money. So, okay, this is kind of what I was getting at. I think this is the main thing. There was probably ad revenue, and I'm not sure if they actually paid fan fiction writers. Um, 
But uh, to fund the archive expansion, they took $3 million in venture capital money, which was way more than they needed. People, anybody who had operated an archive knew that, like, you didn't need $3 million to, you know, run the servers and stuff. So they took $3 million. They're basically just a bunch of, like, corporate people that were trying to generate revenue from fan fiction. So fan fiction authors would post their work to the fanlib archive again, which was like basically the list was stripped from fanfic.net. But there would also be, you know, benefits like these fanfic contests and partnerships with these TV shows to kind of, I guess, generate appeal to fan fiction writers. And I'm sure there was some promise to like monetize the actual stories or get fan fiction authors money. I'm not totally sure. Um, But there was basically venture capital money involved. So uh, it was a for-profit corporation, you know, using fan fiction writers and uh, trying to make money. That was a, that was a big thing. And people who had seen these cease and desist letters and these purges happen and the thing with uh, Fandom Inc. happened, it just like wasn't good. And anybody who knew anything about copy, copyright law knew that anytime you involve money, Anytime there's a profit, you're opening yourself up to getting sued or getting your content pulled. So the fan lib thing is specifically mentioned in kind of this kerfuffle or uproar that you see on LiveJournal. And one of those essays that you saw come up was an essay by Cupid's Bow called How Fan Fiction Makes Us Poor. Um, Another was Cesperanza made a post, Dear Fandom, could you please stop saying that? which is kind of like uh, an essay about how you absolutely have the right under fair use to write fan fiction. And even if you disagree that fan fiction is legal, you should stop saying in your opinion that it's illegal. So it's this kind of manifesto, like, please stop spreading the message that fan fiction is illegal because it is actually protected by fair use. And then we get to ask the lots an archive of one owns. And that's all between April and May of 2007. So I know I kind of sped through that, but that fan libs commoditization of fan fiction directly tied into these conversations that started happening on LiveJournal in April, May of 2007. Yeah. And it, you know, it really made fans feel like they were being exploited by the big corporations because, you know, not only were these corporations on FanLib trying to profit from their work and their creativity, Mm. but then they were stripping you of the right to your own story because as soon as you uploaded it onto the site, they owned all of that content and could do whatever they want with it. And so there were so many fan backlash uh, that that happened after the FanLib debacle because it really just felt like exploitation. And I feel like there were a lot of fans who also saw it partially also as kind of a feminism issue, you know, because like historically speaking, um, you know, women do a lot of unpaid work all over the place, right? And uh, we're not necessarily getting paid for it and all that stuff. And then um, to have these big companies come in and take this fan fiction that takes a lot of heart and a lot of time and a lot of passion to, to create, you know, and to just take it away from somebody and try to make money off of it and exploit people. And it just was so super awful. And people were so upset about it. Um, and yeah, 
that's when Astolat made her famous, uh, you know, an archive of one's own post on Life Journal. So this was right around the time when, you know, Life Journal had done their strike through purges and then FanLib happened that same year. And uh, yeah, like you said, Sarah, it was kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah. And uh, we'll dig into Astolat here, but on the kind of feminism angle of things, you guys should read that Cupid's Bow, How Fan Fiction Makes Us Poor essay. It's a, like a really thoughtful one. And it does question, she kind of questions like why all these women out here are writing this fan fiction and why we're doing it for free. And she doesn't necessarily advocate for commercialized fan fiction. And I think the side that most of us, after looking into it, fall onto is that it really should be non-commercial and it should be done for the love of the fandom. And there's just not a viable way that you could commercialize it without it sort of ruining it. But it's an, she does kind of raise that question. It's just a really thoughtful essay. I think she just raises a great conversation and it does really fold in a lot to like women's kind of past oppression and sort of invisibility and fandom in the past and how people look at fan fiction and even the word derivative like derivative literally means it sort of comes from something else but it also takes on a really negative context uh for a lot of people like it's derivative it's not original it's that means it's bad right so she goes into that and i think it's a great essay but yeah a month later in may Astolat writes a, a live journal post in 2007 and i think this one's worth reading out loud do you think that's okay that yeah. It's pretty short. Yeah. Um I'll probably read it and then I'll just kind of stop and like we can talk about some stuff. It's pretty amazing actually. Um so this was posted on Astolat's live journal in May of 2007. She specifically calls out the first thing that she says is first uh why fanfic is not illegal and why you should stop saying that it is even if you don't agree. That's that essay I mentioned by Cesperanza. Astolat specifically links that first and she said please read that first and that essay is essentially saying yes fan fiction is legal it does fall under fair use exemption and you should stop saying that it doesn't so here's the essay it says that said the people behind fanlib uh talked about many places see astro tv here and there's a link to another live journal the people behind fanlib don't actually care about fanfic the fanfic community, or anything except making money off content created entirely by other people and getting media attention. They don't have a single fanfic reader or writer on their board. They don't even have a single woman on their board. They're creating a lawsuit bait site while being bad potential defendants, and they deserve to be chased out being pelted with rocks. But even if they were, as in being chased out, uh, which I doubt is going to happen because, hey, they have people and money and we're still left with this problem. We are sitting quietly by the fireside creating piles and piles of content around us and other people are going to look at that and see an opportunity. And they're going to end up creating the front doors that new fanfic writers walk through unless we stand up and build our own front door. Which is a pretty cool and powerful statement. She's basically saying we're at this lynch point in fan fiction and we're, we're at this point where we need to decide what our future is going to be. And so we can create it or we can let other people create it for us. She goes on to say, we need a central archive of our own, which is so cool. Something like animemusicvids.org, something that would not hide from Google or any public mention that would clearly state our case, 
for the legality of our hobby up front while not trying to make a profit off other people's IP as an intellectual property, and instead only making it easier for us to celebrate it together and create a welcoming space for new fans that has a sense of our history and our community behind it. And then actually, this is pretty cool because she lists her wish list. And I think you and I can go through this, Beth. It's pretty cool because obviously nothing existed at this point. This is a wish list. Yeah. And we can see how much of this came to fruition. So she says, I think the necessary features would include run by fanfic readers for fanfic readers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Check. Absolutely. The board at uh, the OTW is fanfic readers and writers. No ads, solely donation supported. Yep. Check. <laughs> Absolutely no ads on AO3. Uh, a simple and highly searchable interface and browsable quick search pages. Yes. Check. It's the uh, tagging system specifically. Uh, the next point, the archive allows anything, het slash RPF, Chan, kink, highly adult, with a registration process for reading adult rated stories where once you register, you don't have to keep clicking through warnings every time you read which is exactly what we have. When you register for an account with AO3, I think you either have to have an invitation or something like that, but you have to basically say that you're an adult, you're mature. And that we actually do, I think if you're not logged in, they do have a warning, but once you're logged in, there's not, I don't think you have to click any more buttons to, uh, to read explicit fic. So we got that. Um, allow the poster to control her stories, i.e. upload, delete, edit, tagging. Oh yeah. Have all that stuff. Full control by the author. Yep. Uh, allow users to leave comments with the poster able to delete and ban particular users, but not edit the comment content. We've got that. Uh, Code-wise, able to support a huge archive of possibly millions of stories. Check. I don't know how many stories are on AO3 right now, but a lot. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And just that tagging system, you know, being able to organize it all. Uh, Freaking amazing. Yep. Yeah, there's nothing else like it. Like, it's really changed the way... I mean, it's just the only archive that's that's like that anymore. Um, the last point, giving explicit credit to the original creators while clearly disclaiming any official status. So, yeah, you put your username on it. Nobody can take that from you. As far as disclaiming any official status, like AO3, the OTW, they have a legal team. We can talk about that. You are protected by a team of board members and a, and a legal team and a nonprofit that will advocate for you and say that this person is not making money, this person is creating a transformative work, this person's work falls under the fair use disclaimer of the Copyright Act. So you don't have to have a lawyer. OTW's got your back. Um, and then she's got just some dream features. I won't read them all, but just making it easier for people to download stories, options for people to post pod fic or ebook format versions, translations, fan art, fan vids. All that stuff is on AO3 right now. Tagging. <laughs> Absolutely. Automatic rec lists. We have the bookmarking feature. Yep. Um, charity auctions. Uh, she says we could do an annual fundraiser and send whatever is left over to charity. They do. I don't know exactly if they have like charity auctions, but they certainly uh, only use donations um, for their nonprofit status. Um, so she says she goes on to say, if I had 30 seconds more time, I would just try and do it. But I don't right now. 
So I'm throwing out this plea into the ether. I am putting myself out here right now to say that I would help out as any and all of of an advisor, a fundraiser, a promoter, and I would archive my own stuff there. I would even take on coding parts. I just can't take on project management. But I do know we have project managers in our community and coders and designers. Can we do this? Seriously, we can come up with a site that would be miles better and more attractive to fanfic writers and readers than anything else out there, guys, because we actually use the stuff. And that's basically how she closes out the essay. And it's cool to read the comments because there's people like Sesperanza, uh, Rifkati, Kathesis, Gchik. Uh, Tripoli, all those people, I think our guest next week that we're having on older than Netflix, uh, AKA Francesca, you see her comment, all these people are like, fuck yeah, dude, let's do that. And so that was May 17th in 2007. The timeline here, the domain name transformativeworks.org is registered in May of 2007, uh, on May 30th. So like two or three weeks later. Then the domain name archive of our own is registered on May 30th as well. Just, you know, it's just, just like a couple weeks after. Um, the OTW was incorporated in September of 2007, four months later. The project was announced by Astolot at Worldcon in August uh, or September of 2007. Um, she, This is probably your stuff, Beth. You can maybe, because I don't <laughs> yeah. remember putting this. That was my, my little note. Yeah, when she – it was cool because, you know, in her original post, she talks about, like, you know, I can't necessarily take on this project by myself, but I'm willing to fight for this project. I'm willing to uh, promote for this project and all that. And she was true to her word. Like, she did that. She went to these cons and she promoted this idea of an archive of our own and for us. And, uh, and yeah, she did announce that at WorldCon in 2007. And uh, she was uh, participating in a panel with another panelist named uh, Corey Doctorow. And when Corey heard uh Astolat like uh promoting this project he wrote her a check right on the spot for five hundred dollars and said here you go this is a great idea so that was the first uh you know donation that ever came into the OTW was on a panel at Worldcon um but uh but yeah after that things got moving pretty quickly that timeline blows me away that that post was on May 17th the domain name is registered on May 30th uh, she's at Worldcon in uh, September, either August or September of that year. So May to September, just like a world of difference. I think that's amazing. And the actual, so the beta Freya 3 began in October of 2008. So that's like a year later. And then essentially, I mean, the archive, as I as we know, it is running in 2009, where anyone could create account on a first come first serve basis. So like that timeline, less than two years is like incredible to me. Yeah. Yeah. And when you think about like all the crazy work that had to go into this because you had to get lawyers involved, you had to, you know, register with the secretary of state, you had to, you know, register all of these domain names and just getting the project up and running because, um, you know, the the code that was used to make the archive was this uh, Ruby on Rails. And um it would have cost so much money, right, to hire like professionals to come and code this website. So what they were doing is they were asking for volunteers and these volunteers would learn Ruby on Rails coding so that they could code the website on a volunteer basis. And so like 
just the sheer scale of like organizing, you know, hundreds of volunteers to, to code this site and, and do all of this stuff in the background is just incredible that, uh, you know, a group of fans can get together all over the world and decide that they wanted to do something amazing. They stayed on task and, and they created something incredible for us. That's just amazing to me. It's so cool. And that's the coolest part about that project. I think that we got to learn everything that led up to this and why this was so important and when you look at the legal action that was happening against fan fiction writers, all those purges, you know, people's stories, just like, you know, when we we're talking about the Greek and Romans at the beginning of the of the show, how mo- a lot of Western canon, a lot of the stories are lost because those stories just over time or libraries burned down. The same thing was happening with these sort of Internet archives, with, which they were just disappearing. They were just dissolving into the ether and to have... Uh, a group of fans just stop and say, what is it we need and what do we want? And let's do it ourselves because no one's going to do it for us. Uh, it's pretty fucking cool. And I, I would just also say that, you know, the, if people are wondering, like, what makes AO3 different from fanfic.net, it is the nonprofit status. And a lot of people don't understand the mechanisms of that. And I don't exactly. But I do know that you have to register, as Beth said, with the... Uh, is it the Secretary of State? Yep. Yeah. Yep. So in this case, Delaware. And you have to prove come tax time that all the money you get goes back into the to the nonprofit. The people that make AO3 work are volunteers, but all that money goes back. You cannot turn a profit as a company. And it's also run by a board of directors. And those people are elected. So they are directly accountable to the people that use the archive and the organization for transformative works. Um, they, they rely on, I guess, the public to keep them honest, but all those people are fanfic writers. They're authors themselves. And so there's actual accountability, whereas with a for-profit corporation, people are just taking home money. They're accountable to nobody but the bottom line. Um, and so the OTW has writers – interests at heart because they are writers themselves. So if you have a problem with AO3, you can uh, you can make that known and you can run to be on the board if you wanted to. So that's the cool part about um, having a nonprofit fan run entity. Uh, a corporation's not going to shut it down. Um, one archivist can't just die and everything's gone. You have a board of people who are continuously trying to improve the archive and keep everybody safe. And, and there's a legal team, as I said, to have your back if you need it. So, um, yeah, it's pretty amazing. And, and it's easy to take for granted. So, yeah, it is. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is. So it's just really interesting when you like look at the big picture, right, mm-hmm. of where fandom started and all of the crazy legal actions and the legal things that, that people had to go through and purges and all that to you know, where someone finally put their foot down and said, no, we're not going to do this anymore, you know, because we had to own those servers, you know, and um, uh, kind of going off of what you said about accountability. Um, I know that every time, every time there's a drive for AO3, you know, you have mm-hmm. some people come out of the word works and they want to, you know, stir up trouble about the whole, you know, nonprofit thing and the, um, the drive for funds and stuff like that um mm. 
I have always been impressed personally with how transparent the OTW is with their budget. If anybody out there has any question about what the a uh, what AO3 does and what the OTW does with those funds that they um, they get with the drives every year, they post their budget right there on the website so you can see exactly where all of that money goes. Um, and it's pretty simple, you know. <laughs> it goes to legal. It goes to keeping the uh, the servers up. It costs a lot of money, you guys, to keep those servers up um, because you know it's a lot of servers, first of all, right? Mm-hmm. Because especially because the archive keeps growing. I think, um, Sarah, I don't remember the exact statistics, but I, I know that last year and this year, because of the pandemic, the use on AO3 just like skyrocketing. Yeah. Everybody's at home. Yeah. Yeah. You know, kind of, you know, testing the bandwidth of those AO3 servers there, you know. So it takes a lot of money to keep them running and to upgrade them when they need to be upgraded, you know, because they host millions of fixed. So Yeah. It's funny. Those people that are probably complaining about like, oh, we don't know where that money goes. One, probably haven't actually looked on the site to see the breakdown of where that money goes. But two, they're probably also the people that complain as soon as like AO3 has a server overload or they have a service <laughs> interruption like on Twitter, like, God damn it, I can't read my, my Dean Cass fic right now, those SOBs. It's like, well, you've got all these volunteers working and, and coders that are trying to fix your server right now. So they're probably using some of that donation money to do that right now. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, I am a member of the Reddit fan fiction page. And it's really funny to me when you see a lot of people on there who um, like to complain about the bugginess of fanfiction.net. Yeah. And they're forever like complaining about this bug or that bug or blah, blah, blah. And isn't fanfiction.net ever going to fix this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Fanfiction.net is not a nonprofit, you guys. Like that's a for profit site, you know, and they mm-hmm. can't even fix the bugs and the crazy shit that happens on that website. And I feel like when you compare that to the responsiveness of AO3's uh, volunteer team, when a server goes down, they're right there on Twitter saying, hey, guys, server's down. We're working on it. We're looking into it. Don't worry. You know, and they respond to that. And, you know, of course, AO3 has its quirks and it has things that don't work. And there are known issues, of course. But I feel like those issues are so minimal compared to all of the things that do work and work really well. It's such a – you're right. Absolutely. I always go – if I if I see it, someone's loading up slow, I go to Twitter. Inevitably, two minutes ago, OTW's already posted, you're right, like a status like, we're on it. Sorry, guys. You know, and uh, as you said, it's a beautiful site. It just is – it hasn't – you know, the look of it is just – it's easy to look at. Like, I pull up fanfic and like the blue and the white and then the font just drives me crazy. There's ads everywhere. And uh, AO3, I don't know, they just they just have created something that looks great, works great. I, I don't know. There's like a nostalgia for me now for that like red and white and uh, just uh, – It's so iconic though, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I don't – I still don't understand when people are like – they say they're fanfic writers or readers and they're not on AO3. They're like on Wattpad and we didn't even talk about Wattpad because honestly I don't even understand Wattpad but – all the sites, like, they just don't make sense to me why you would be there. And it's probably because people don't exactly know what AO3 is or they're, 
I don't know. It's just so much better. It's And people should support AO3 and people should donate and people should learn about it and what it does because it's these are your people and this is your history and yeah. it's fucking great, man. It's cool. Absolutely. There's so much history behind it. So we kind of wanted to bring that to you guys just in case you've never, never heard the story before of like these crazy events that kind of led up to – AO3's existence becoming absolutely necessary for people like us who just want to enjoy our fan fiction without being bothered by purges and legal action and all that crazy stuff. So Yeah, so don't take it for granted. Um, And uh, you should go on the OTW site. They have all kinds of information about the other kind of uh, sister projects or the, you know, projects they have. The archive is really just one of like five projects. There's the open doors thing where they, they try and make sure that... Uh, other archives get safely ported over. Um, they partner with, I think it's the University of Iowa. There's like a special collections at some university where they have like old zines and old fandom projects and they're trying to keep, you know, preserve those. And they have um, fan, oh, fan lore is the, is AOTW's wiki. So all this information we got pretty much from fan lore. There are a few other articles we read, but. Um, it's amazing that the history is being documented on fan lore. Um, otherwise, like we wouldn't know any of this. Beth knows better than anybody. If you don't know your history, you can't avoid repeating the same mistakes. So fan lore was really important for us. Yeah, I, I don't think we, this project would have come together if not for fan lore, right? Because thank God for all of those fans who went on to fan lore and documented a lot of these uh, these happenings for us so that we could, you know, put it all together into some sort of, uh, you know, comprehensive timeline because, uh, because yeah, Sarah's absolutely right. If you do not know your history and cannot preserve it, you are doomed to repeat it over and over and over. And we definitely don't want that in our fandom communities. So, um, you know, thank God <laughs> for yeah. the preservation of the fan fiction, but also the preservation of the history. Yep. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's it. That's what I got for today's episode. I think we got a pretty good survey. Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully you guys really enjoyed this. Hopefully you got some good information out of it and just, you know, kind of getting a good idea of how it all kind of went together and how events followed one right after the other and, and why we have AO3 and why why it's so important. Yep. And uh, yeah, so uh, very exciting. Next episode will be over at Fanfic Maverick. So find Fanfic Maverick, subscribe to uh, the Fanfic Maverick podcast because we got a couple of uh, OG fans that are going to give us more of a perspective on these same events, but from people who um, kind of remember what it was like and they were there for that that sort of things and get their perspective on it so that's i'm really looking forward to that that'll be exciting oh yeah oh yeah that's gonna be so great i'm looking forward to it too so make sure that you uh listen to this episode obviously first to get a good general idea of the events and the things we'll be talking about and then uh you know what are we calling it uh, uh fan fiction fandom history episode version two <laughs> yeah so we'll like that with the, with history the guests, history so. of fan fiction Part two. Part two. There you go. Or, or the panel, you know. Yeah, something yeah. like that. Yeah, something like that. But yeah, yeah, that'll come out. So Awesome. Well, thank you, Beth. And um, yeah, you guys just uh, stay tuned. I also love your sign-off, Beth. Can you do it here? Like that, <laughs> the sign-off that you do on Fanfic Maverick? I don't really have one. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Are, are we ready? I think we're ready. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe. And we will see you next episode. In the meantime, keep, keep on, on rolling. rolling. <laughs>
Oh, I love it. I love it. <laughs>